This episode is brought to you by a listener who wishes to remain anonymous. Their recent donation to the MJ Cast has made it possible for us to give back to an amazing charity organisation called Children International. To support a child in need, visit children.org. The following is a presentation from the MJ Cast, the internet's premier podcast on all things Michael Jackson. I'm a black American. I am proud of who I am. Together, we can make a change in the world. I like to take sounds and put them on the microscope. There's a driving bass. You become the bass. Let the music write itself. I don't sing it if I don't mean it. Welcome to the MJ Cast, your source of news, discussion, and interviews on the King of Pop. Hey, Charlie, how are you? Hi, German. I'm okay. How are you? Yeah, doing doing well. It's it's uh, been a while since we've done a Q and A. I don't even remember when I last did a Q and A. I think you did one. It was with Mike. Oh yes, the Leaving Neverland Q and A. That would have been 2019. That was probably close to two years ago. Yeah, nearly two years ago, and it was. Uh, it's it's one of our most downloaded episodes ever. People love to tune in and hear what you have to say. Oh well, that's good. I can't remember if I was ill on that one or not. I know that whole period I just sounded half dead, but um, <laughs> I do rem- I do remember recording that one. I also remember recording the solo one, but I don't remember when that was. And I know that by the end of the solo one, my voice was like completely shredded. I'd sort of talked myself to death. Yeah, I think um, it's kind of funny because most episodes you come on with the MJ cast, you're, you're either sick with some kind of flu or it's so late your time that you sound like you're just about to go to sleep (laughs) (laughs) well you know i'm I'm pretty tired today i've had a long day i've just checked my my phone and i've racked up twenty thousand steps today but i'm feeling i'm I'm awake at the moment that's uh that's pretty cool you've been walking around buckingham palace you told me earlier well, not walking around Buckingham Palace. I mean, that would be uh, quite the achievement. But um, I was up in London and uh, walked past it on my way to the park. I was quite surprised by how quiet it was and how few tributes there were actually to uh, Prince Philip. Because we're recording this, of course, the day after Prince Philip uh, died. So, um, I mean, there were people there and there were some flowers there. But, you know, I remember... Princess Diana dying in ninety seven, and you know it's like a it's a, this is it's a very different scene outside Buckingham Palace at the moment. Yeah, yeah, I suppose nothing can compare to when she died. That was pretty shocking. One of those moments I think everybody kind of remembers where they were when it when it happened. Similar to to Michael when he passed away, I think. Um, just a, a significant moment in a lot of people's lives. I was, I think, I was sitting in a car like a my brother was at a baseball game and I was really young, like grade four or something like that. And I was listening to the radio and the news came over. I was pretty shocked. I remember exactly. I remember. So it was, um, I, I woke up for some reason very early this morning. It was still dark outside when I woke up and I went downstairs and my dad, who was doing night work, was sitting in the kitchen. And he said to me, the most famous woman in the world died last night do you know who she was and i said was it janet jackson (laughs) and uh and then he told me it was diana 
but um you know to, i mean princess diana to me was sort of like i assume i'd heard of her but i was too young to really understand the significance of of who she was um i would have been about i was i think nine but i do remember i remember that moment when i found out and i remember watching the funeral uh on tv with my parents yeah and of course there's that really poignant michael lyric i think in the song privacy i can't remember what the exact lyric is but it's about it's referencing why one of his friends had to oh, die yes some of you still some of you still wondering why one of my friends had to die to get the message across that yet you haven't heard that memory dude that memory especially from an album that we would say is not one of your favorites <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, it goes on. My friend was chased and confused like many others I knew. But on that cold winter night, her life was snatched away. But uh, in fact, she didn't die in winter. She died in summer. But, um, you know, who's who's checking? Still a pretty cool lyric, I must say. <laughs> for, for a song that's not that great. Like, <laughs> Michael doesn't get enough credit as a, as a lyricist, I don't think. It's a song that's um, almost completely unlistenable i think but it has an important point to make i just find the whole song awful from the moment it starts where they have that ridiculous conversation about hey is that michael jackson no that's that not ain't him. no michael jackson that ain't him <laughs> and then you're just going well this song's about the paparazzi so why is it opened with a conversation between two members of the party you know the whole thing just doesn't make any sense and then I think wasn't there some issue where Slash was credited as a guitarist on that track, and then when it came out, he said, "I'm not even on that track." Do you remember that, or have I yeah, made that I, up I, or conflated it with something else? I vaguely remember that. It's there's a few weird things going on about that track. Do you know the artist Beck? Of course, you know Deck. Beck. Oh, Beck. Right. Yeah, yeah, Beck. yeah. Sorry, I thought you said Deck. I was like, who? <laughs> Who's Deck? <laughs> the hell is Deck? <laughs> okay. Beck. Well, Beck's, I'm pretty sure Beck's dad, who is also a musician, did the strings on that song. Who knew there were strings on that song? I mean, okay, I'll take your word for it, but yeah, I didn't, I didn't the, uh... remember there being any strings. I haven't listened to it for a long time, but... Yeah, I can't imagine that Invincible is one of the, the albums that you put on, on the regular. And in fact, that is one of our questions coming up in this Q&A is, uh, is around the album Invincible. So I can't wait to get to that one. Oh, goody. Um, anyway, let's, uh, let's get on with it. We, we have a bunch of questions here. Thank you to everybody who took the time to submit questions. We were really happy with all of them. Uh, we're really sorry if yours didn't make it in, but we, we have to try and keep this show to a reasonable length of time. <laughs> So, and are you also, ready to go, Charlie? Yeah, Sorry. and I should just point out that I have not had sight of any of the questions, so I'm I'm coming in blind. Yeah, blind, but you've got that uh, memory that you just demonstrated to us, so that's gonna it's gonna come in handy. Well, I hope so. Here we go. So, first question, first cab off the rank is from the Pale Prince of Peculiarity. And their question is, can you tell us what you know about Michael's relationship with Sony? What went wrong and why did he hate them so much at the end of his life? It's a really confusing topic for me. So I might start this one off. They want a short answer to that question, you say. 
Well, <laughs> we could do a whole show just on that, but we're going to try and get through these uh, okay. kind of quick. So I, I think now these issues with Sony that Michael had kind of stem back to me from the early 90s because I remember interviewing, I think it was Brian Loren, who told me that even during the dangerous recording sessions that there was a time when Michael got off the phone to Tommy Mottola and he found Michael just like totally distraught and crying because of his conversation with Tommy around that album. So I think the problems were, they stemmed back longer than, than people kind of thought. Uh, I also remember my conversations with 3T and pretty much all of them said that Michael, the reason their career was kind of stalled was because after their first album, um, when they were recording their second album, uh, Michael pretty much was the one who blocked them from signing with Sony again, which resulted in, you know, basically a, a long career hiatus. I, I guess, I don't know, I th- I would say things really started heating up in the 90s, but then were at boiling point by the time Invincible came around. Uh, I don't, <laughs> the breakdown with Sony, I wouldn't attribute completely to Sony. I would say Michael has uh, a part to play in that with the amount of time that he took with Invincible and the amount of, well, the ludicrous amount of money that he spent, you know, getting that album together. But Michael's issues with with Sony seem to kind of hover around Tommy Mottola and his uh, racist behavior. And uh, I would love to speak to Corey Rooney, actually. He's somebody I'd love to interview to find out a bit more about that. Who I think he was vice president of Sony at the time when the relationship broke down. Yeah, I think um, obviously the context is that Michael goes over and, and signs this deal with Sony ahead of the Dangerous album. And a big part of what lured him to go and work with Sony was that he was promised that they would put him into films, into movies. And uh, there was some beginning of, of that happening with the whole Ghosts project that was going to tie in somehow with the Adams family. And then the Geordie Chandler situation happened and it all just went to pot. And for various reasons, the films never happened. And, uh, you know, there are myriad reasons why that might be, uh, you know, Michael's appearance making it difficult to cast him as any character other than Michael Jackson. You know, there's a debate to be had about his acting abilities anyway. So I think that a huge part of what attracted him to go and and work with Sony was the films. And then when that didn't happen, he was quite cheesed off about it. And there was a story that when Invincible was due out, that he stole all of the recordings and withheld them, held them hostage and said that he wouldn't hand them over to Sony unless they got him a, a cameo in the Men in Black movie. I don't know if that story is true, but I remember it being reported at the time. The first public crack in the relationship, of course, is in that fan magazine interview, the Black and White magazine, which came out in around 98, 99, where he's talking to the interviewer about how Sony made him put the remixes on the Blood on the Dance Floor album. And he hates the remixes and he doesn't like people messing with his songs, but Sony insisted on it. And then the fan says, yeah, we don't really like them either. We just want new material from you. And Michael's like, yeah, I knew it. I knew it. So he's bitching about Sony there for the first time publicly in the late 90s. And then, you know, there's various circumstances, which I mean, by the time Invincible comes out, I mean, 
Michael is quite clearly not interested in recording music anyway. On the Invincible album, it's very notable how many songwriters there are on a lot of the tracks on the album compared to previous albums. If you look at Dangerous or History or Bad, there are a lot of Michael Jackson penned songs, whereas on Invincible, there are two songs which are credited exclusively to to Michael Jackson, and some of those songs have like seven, eight songwriters on. He clearly was just not that enthused and not that uh, excited and um, and inspired and was incapable of touring, I would say, because of the, the substance issues that he was having that he later testified about uh, in a deposition. So I think he was cheesed off with Sony. I think Invincible was a product of somebody that was basically going through the motions and didn't really have any interest in what they were doing. As a result of that, the frosty relationship, the lack of interest, the promotion was lackluster. Michael was not really in any fit state to promote that album anyway. He was looking pretty bad. He was not in shape. He was uh, intoxicated a lot of the time. There was a story that came out a few years ago that he was supposed to tour for Invincible, but it got cancelled because of 9-11 or something. I was complete bogus nonsense. There was I think no Michael way. Michael Prince said that in um, the This Is It bonus material. There is no way Michael could have toured that album. It's, it's inconceivable that he could have toured that album. When you look at the state that he's in, in a lot of the public appearances that he made around that time, you know, whether it's him you know, sort of staggering up the red carpet at the Madison Square Garden shows, slurring in his interviews with uh, MTV and the other camera crews, uh, whether it's him, uh, you know, walking out on stage at the 2002 Video Music Awards and s- smacking into a wall, you know, I mean, it, he's, whether it's the Bashir documentary where he's just basically away with the fairies for the whole thing, there's no way he could have taught that album. So you, I think it was a combination. I think, you know, there's a pretty strong evidence base that Sony was trying to sabotage him because they were trying to press him into a situation where they could get the catalogue off him for a reduced price. And it was convenient to them that at the same time, Michael was really in no fit state to be working and earning money anyway. And the product that he delivered was one that was unlikely to be overly successful i mean when people call invincible a flop it is a bit of a stretch because the numbers that he did with invincible were numbers that almost any artist in the world would envy it was just that they were not numbers that michael jackson would envy you know so it was a flop for michael jackson uh and it was a globally it did well domestically i don't know how well it did in america well the other thing is as you say that the money that was allegedly spent recording and promoting it, I have serious questions about the uh, supposed budget for promotion because there really wasn't any promotion. Well, budget, sure, but, I mean, you look at the recording process, I mean, it's pretty well known that Michael was billing Sony for a ridiculous amount of stuff that the Jerkins team were after, you know, hotel rooms and just, I think he had, Jerkins working on that album for at least I think it was like at least 18 months I think well beyond that and uh, a lot of that time was being billed to Sony so (laughs) it was uh I I definitely think this is a case of there being two to tango and I can and in my conversation with um 
we I had a conversation once with a Sony music executive um, who who was expressing how frustrating that era was in terms of working with Michael. Yeah, and I think the problem was that a lot of the time Michael was not really in a fit state because I remember hearing from people that there were people that were working on that project that believe that by the time it came out, he would be dead because of the state he was showing up in sometimes for sessions. You know, he was, as I say, he gave a deposition some years later where he was testifying about how he'd managed to sign power of attorney over to Dieter and uh, lose control of his trademark in Europe, where he was talking about the fact that during that period he was using medication, which would alter which would affect his decision-making capabilities and so on. And you just have to look at a lot of footage of him from around that period. And you can see that he's under the influence. And uh, as I say, I've, I heard stories at the time and I've heard stories since. And, I, and certainly I think Damien has heard stories as well when he was researching his book about Invincible that Michael was in no fit state. So it was a confluence of circumstances. Michael didn't want to be doing it. He was not really capable. The material was lackluster. He couldn't take it on tour. And Sony didn't want it to succeed anyway, was the truth, I think. So anyway, that's a long-winded answer, and I can't remember what the question was now. Well, we've just spent 20 minutes on question one, so... Uh... <laughs> okay, so we maybe better we should keep aim to do six rather than 60. <laughs> Probably not a bad idea. We should have culled a little bit more thoroughly. Okay, Annie... If the planet was about to be blown up by an evil supervillain and the only way to save humanity was for Charles Thompson to perform, either heal the world, the lost children, or I just can't stop loving you, which one would he choose? Well, I mean, who am I performing it to? I think... Me. To you. Oh, God. Um, You see, I'm tempted to say I just can't stop loving you because then I'd only have to sing half of it. But um, <laughs> I think the sort of the easiest to sing and the most boring would be the lost children. I mean, that just doesn't, it seems like it wouldn't be too much of an exercise to get through that. Whereas Heal the World does have some pretty, it does just get higher and higher as it goes on, doesn't it? So that might be, that might present a challenge to a non-singer. So probably the lost children, as much as I, I hate it, but yeah. If, if it's going to save the planet. Neil G, there has been reports of an MJ movie in the works. Is this a good idea? If so, who should play Michael? In my opinion, this is not a good idea. I don't care about it. I don't want to see it. <laughs> I can understand why, you know, studios may want to do this, but uh, I certainly have no interest. Uh, being a massive Michael Jackson fan, I'm interested in the real Michael. <laughs> I'd much rather see a really well-produced documentary. Uh, I have no idea who could play Michael because I just don't want it to happen. Yeah, I agree entirely. I think it's a catastrophically bad idea. Michael was somebody who looked very unique. Well, his appearance changed a lot, of course, but he looked certainly in the latter portion of his life extremely unique, unlike anybody else has ever looked. And it's hard to imagine somebody being able to pull that off, whether through makeup or whatever, without it being offensive. You have the whole issue of the race of the actor that's portraying Michael, which, you know, that's just a whole big 
problem. You know, you have, um, the, I mean, Michael was a, a very flawed and in my opinion, mentally damaged, you know, emotionally damaged person. I think that, um, again, it's a, it's a matter. I mean, Michael was so bizarre in a way and so eccentric and the way that he lived his life and, you know, the high voice and the, the sort of childlike persona. I remember they made some TV movie years ago with, um, I think the guy's name was Flex Alexander. Flex Alexander, was that right? Yeah, that, just, yeah, that's that it. rings a bell. I think it was called Man in the Mirror. Yeah, the guy was like seven feet tall or something. I mean, it was just ridiculous. <laughs> he looked like Michael Jordan in a wig. The whole thing was just stupid. But I remember him, the way, you know, they were trying to capture that kind of childlike innocence of Michael's persona. And it, it, what it ended up looking like was like he, it just, it was offensive. It was just offensive. So it portrayed him as a simpleton, essentially. And it, it's just hard to imagine. It would be, it would be almost impossible for somebody to strike the balance correctly when it comes to all of these different issues, when it comes to the appearance, when it comes to the the voice, when it comes to the persona. And then, you know, it's like Michael's life was so extraordinary and outlandish in, in many ways that you could take almost any year or two year period of Michael's life and make a movie about it. So how do you truncate Michael's life and make a film about it? It also is difficult to imagine, you know, they, it can be successfully done. I've never seen Bohemian Rhapsody. I've heard from a lot of people that it was atrociously awful, but um, for example, uh, Ray, is phenomenal. Ray is one of my favorite films ever. But you cannot compare Ray Charles's career to Michael Jackson's. You just can't. You know, Ray Charles never went through enormous legal battles in the way that Michael did. He never, you know, he just, his career, he was an extraordinary artist and I'm a fan, but you cannot compare the life. You cannot, it, it, it's impossible to truncate Michael Jackson's life down into a movie. So, choices have got to be made about what is or is not included it's very difficult to see how that could be done in a way which would satisfy both fans and critics yeah i just think the whole thing is a recipe for disaster and, and controversy and uh upset yeah yeah i think i agree the only way that i could see it being done in a feature film length is if they take the same approach that aaron sorkin did when writing the steve jobs film where I think that movie was centered around three very specific periods of time. I think it was three famous product announcements backstage before each one. And it was just a lot of dialogue with flashbacks um, to key moments in his life. And uh, if they if they kind of took a few specific moments in Michael's life, wrote some really clever dialogue to show the character of Michael, and then maybe used flashbacks as a device they could they could pull it off in a few hours but still i it's just not for me i just <laughs> i can see why it could attract people that that aren't mega fans but i, I can't see myself or, or many of my friends really enjoying watching somebody else attempt to play michael jackson did aaron sorkin also write the social network yes he did 
Yeah. See, that that would be a device that could potentially work uh, because the social network obviously uses as the spine the lawsuit, this massive lawsuit, which is uh, happening between, uh, what's the guy's name? Mark Zuckerberg. Zuckerberg and the other people that supposedly helped him create the platform. And so it uses that lawsuit as sort of the spine and again works in a, a kind of a sort of flashing backwards and forwards between what happened in the past and what's happening in the lawsuit. I think it's a few years yes. since I saw it. So you could essentially, you could take the trial and you could use the trial prep as the spine and then be flashing backwards and forwards. But see, but, but then you've got this whole, when you're flashing backwards and forwards in Michael Jackson's life, you're flashing backwards to a man that looks nothing like the man that's now facing trial, right? So now, how do you explain that? Now you've got to find some exposition device to try and explain why you were in a room with Michael Jackson with white skin uh, and like a tiny nose and you know, a wig and all that stuff. And now you've got to explain why in the flashback he looks like a completely different person. It's just, there's so much that has to be addressed by the film that is just impossible to see how you could fit it all in. I just think it's a recipe. I mean, you know, I, I just can't, I just can't see any way of doing it. And, and I heard that the Bohemian Rhapsody, see, I didn't see it. So I've got to, got to qualify what I'm saying, but uh, I heard that it's basically full of crap as well, just full of stuff that didn't happen, which again is a problem, you know, because that's a device that many factual, many fact-based movies, many biopics use to to paper over narrative holes as they just make stuff up. But Michael's fan base is so militant that if if there's one thing in that movie that's not true or that's not quite right, then they're just going to end up you know, on the receiving end of a hate mail campaign. So it's, I just think the whole thing is a Pandora's box that's not worth opening. Yeah, and the other problem with Bohemian Rhapsody was that it was so closely worked on by Brian May and the drummer, Roger Taylor. It, it's really whitewashed. Like they don't, oh, yeah. they don't yeah. really show the, the reality of that band's story. They show like a, a very positive version of it, I guess. It's just... If if the estate is so closely tied to the project and they're unwilling to get somebody that's fairly educated and critical of some of Michael's choices, it's just going to come across as completely two-dimensional. Like you said, not a good idea. Shouldn't happen. Let's move on. So the next question is from Tom Routerman, long-time listener, and he asks, do you think it's possible that Taj's series could change the minds of many people or do you feel Michael has been so dehumanized that people will never be able to see past what the media portrays? Charlie, I'll let you start with that one. Oh boy, what a question. So I've spoken with Taj a lot and what Taj's viewpoint, what his mission statement is, is to make something that people will come back to in a hundred years. So in the way that, you know, if I now want to find out about um, Earl Rogers, the trial lawyer, who was a genius trial lawyer of the last century and, you know, just an incredible figure, there is a book that was written about 
Earl Rogers by his daughter, who was a very famous journalist, Adela Rogers St. John. And um, if you want to know about Earl Rogers, then that's pretty much the only way to find out now. I mean, that won't be the case with Michael Jackson because there's just so much out there. But if you want to know about Earl Rogers, then you're going to pick up Adela's book. And I think Taj is thinking in the same way. You know, Jack Johnson, if you, here's a better example Jack Johnson, the boxer, at the time, during his lifetime, completely monstered, just completely monstered and destroyed by the media, by the establishment, the authorities. They all ganged up on him. They all decided to try to destroy him. At the time, it worked, and the people that were Jack Johnson's contemporaries bought into this narrative and this image that was portrayed of him. But now, if you ask anyone about Jack Johnson, they'll tell you that he was bullied, that he was picked on, that he was the victim of racist treatment, that the establishment conspired against him, etc., etc. And that's because the materials that are available now, the proper in-depth portrayals of him, in particular the book Unforgivable Blackness, have changed the narrative. And what Taj... Taj is not really necessarily concerned with changing the minds of people who've already decided today. Taj is concerned that in a hundred years' time, when people want to know about Michael Jackson, nobody is here that knew him. Nobody is here that knew him and can say, this is who Michael Jackson was. He's concerned that when they go looking to find out who Michael Jackson was, what they're going to be presented with is leaving Neverland or is, you know, Diane Diamond's book or whatever. So what he wants to create is, I can't think of the correct term, but he wants to create like a biography of Michael Jackson, which is told by the people that actually knew him, which if you were a scholar a hundred years from now, and you were studying Michael Jackson, then what's the first thing that you would go to? It would probably be the archive of material of people that actually knew him talking about him. So that's what Taj wants to create. He wants to create something for the ages. I mean, if you've got a cousin or, you know, a friend or whoever on Facebook who's just convinced of Michael Jackson's guilt and is unwilling to hear the evidence and the facts and whatever then they're probably a lost cause. And I don't think Taj is especially concerned with rehabilitating a lost cause. I think he wants to make sure that there's something there for posterity and that when people go looking to find out about Michael Jackson after we're all gone, that there's something there that he will have faith in. He will know that he's left something behind that will point people in the direction that he feels comfortable with. So I don't know if that answers the question or not, but I can, that's, that's what Taj's ambition is. That's, that's what he wants to do. It's not necessarily about changing minds now. It's about leaving something. It's about leaving a, a milestone. Just as you were talking there, I, I kind of realized how much of a shame it is, assuming that Taj didn't get to interview Howard Weitzman, uh, who just recently passed away, how much of a tragedy that is really because he was very instrumental in the the settlement the 93 settlement which i'm assuming will be addressed in this miniseries man it's a shame he, he wouldn't have been able to get him on record it is a shame i mean there's um you know even just since he started working on the project there's been a number of people who've passed away 
of whom Howard is just the latest. Bruce. Bruce Woodyan obviously passed away. There was the guy that worked at MJJ Productions. Forgive me, but I always forget his name. It's terrible. It was a guy. He came. He pub. He went public with a statement after leaving Neverland, mm. where he was talking about how he had known, in particular, the Robsons, and because Wade Robson had been signed to MJJ Productions, he had dealt with them on a professional level for years. And he was talking about how problematic they were and how they were always trying to sort of diddle the company out of money and they were demanding, you know, luxurious accommodation all the time. Where's my limo? You know, all that kind of stuff. And how he he just, as soon as he heard that Wade Robson had switched his story, he was extremely sceptical. And, and this was a guy that had known and worked with Wade and his mother for years and he went public with this statement, and then about a month later, he just killed over with a heart attack and died, it, which was just a terrible shame because he was somebody that we wanted to interview. Uh, I think Taj is, uh, this is no secret, I'm sure Taj has said this on the, on the show before, but his ambition is to create a, a project where he interviews just reams and reams of people that actually knew Michael Jackson you know the default when people are making documentaries about Michael Jackson is oh let's ring up Victor Gutierrez let's ring up Diane Diamond you know let's ring up just all these people that never really knew him you know let's ring up Margot Jefferson or whatever the fuck you know just ridiculous really so what Taj wants to do is to is to sit down with the security guards with the personal assistants the secretaries the lawyers, you know, the uh, accountants, the managers, the drivers, you know, the maids, etc. The people that actually came into Michael Jackson's orbit on a daily basis, knew him, spoke to him, spent huge amounts of time with him, and, and demonstrate, you know, firstly tell the story of who Michael Jackson really was through the eyes of people that actually knew him intimately. And secondly, to demonstrate, if you take somebody like Jimmy Savile, or if you take somebody like Harvey Weinstein, you're unlikely to find anybody who is in their circle who is going to tell you that they were innocent and that they don't believe these allegations. Whereas with Michael Jackson, it's like nobody, nobody, by the only people who say that they believe it are people that have been paid to say that they believe it. The, you know, there are even people that Michael fired. You know, there are people that Michael caught stealing from his property and fired. But when they were deposed for the Wade and Jimmy lawsuit, they said, I don't believe it. He was a good person. I fucked up. I got caught. I got sacked. It ruined my life. But I don't believe it. And I think that's what Taj wants to show as well, is that this is not... This is a case which is unlike the cases that it's always juxtaposed with. You know, uh, Michael Jackson is not Harvey Weinstein. Michael Jackson is not Jimmy Savile. Because nobody who actually knew Michael Jackson believes any of this. And a lot of them have already been very vocal. It's just about gathering them together in one place and creating a record, I think, is, is what Taj wants to do. Yeah, I agree with everything you've just said. I think... Really, with leaving Neverland, we reached a tipping point where the, it it doesn't really matter in the public's eye, the uneducated public's eye, around Michael's innocence or right to be presumed innocent. 
I think there were enough accusers following Chandler, Aviso, and then Jimmy and Wade that there was enough doubt in the public's mind. And I think it was a tipping point, and I think a large chunk of the public now really think he's he's guilty. Um, and, and I don't think anything can really save that now except something like a high-profile miniseries that examines all of the details and all of the evidence. And uh, I think part of it is the creation of it, which is going to be a big challenge in itself, like a massive challenge. For Taj to put this together is going to be a huge challenge. And that's why fans, I think, really need to get behind him and support him. But that's only the start of it. You know, actually getting that out onto a, you know, a, a streaming platform is the next big challenge. And I think that's going to be really hard because a lot of these big tech companies like like Netflix are probably aren't going to want to back this because of the stigma associated with it and, you know, how much pressure will be on them. So I think that's a huge problem as well. I would love to say I, I am still very hopeful that this is going to get made. What I'm less hopeful about is that it'll be placed on a platform that will get the reach it needs to convince uneducated people around the truth. Yeah, I think that's definitely a concern. The whole sort of uh, Me Too cancel culture hysteria and corporate brands being frightened to challenge the prevailing ideology of the time which is every allegation must be believed and anybody that says where's the evidence is basically an evil rapist apologist you know so the the presumption of innocence has been completely removed from uh from our society effectively it exists only in our courtrooms now but that presumption is the cornerstone is the bedrock of a civilized society and we are increasingly becoming an uncivilized society where lynch mobs rule and if uh if you have a movement if you have a seemingly virtuous movement and your movement is we want to destroy and uh take away the presumption of innocence and then you turn your attention to a corporate brand and you say are you with us or against us a lot of brands unfortunately have no balls they have no morals mm. and they will just crumble to try to look virtuous so that is definitely a problem sorry i think the other problem is and i think this is something you could talk to a little bit is um i really believe that this miniseries needs to be balanced and and absolutely show that Michael Jackson, in many instances in his life, was a very poor decision maker. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Like he he really did set himself up after the 93 allegations in a very, very dangerous way. You know, this guy was a single father. Uh, he was getting sued all the time for completely ridiculous things, yet he still chose to put himself in extremely vulnerable positions, which would impact his family negatively um I, I think that to get the whole picture to see the whole truth you know people need to understand that michael himself although probably very innocent in his heart did facilitate a lot of these situations he absolutely did he absolutely did and and that's you know i remember when i did the the pirates in neverland thing with brian michaels and one of my first comments in that 
show, I'm sure, was I am not here and will never be anywhere to defend the decision to let kids into his bedroom. It was clearly a mad thing to do. It was mad before 93. After 93, it was completely indefensible. It was completely indefensible because he just left himself open to a copycat accuser. It it was a wildly irresponsible and irrational thing to do, but part of this story has to be also that Michael's decision-making capabilities at that point in his life were severely uh, hindered by his substance use. Uh, This is another issue which a lot of fans shit the bed if you mention it they just can't cope they how dare you how dare you say michael was an addict how dare you blah 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 but he was and during that period during that whole sort of 2000 to 2003 period he was almost constantly under the influence but but even before that even before that in the 90s when a lot of this behavior was still going on at neverland you know, even before a lot of the substance abuse, I have concerns around, you know, like in the 80s, Michael lived in a situation where a lot of people were around him, probably influencing him too much the other way and having too much control over his life. But the whole story of him moving to Neverland, and I mean, really, that's when a lot of this kind of silly decision making started happening was in, you know, the very early 90s and beyond. He, he, It seems to me like the more I learn about Michael Jackson, the more it seems to me like he placed himself in a walled kind of garden in which he didn't have a lot of critical people around him telling him, you know, that's not a good idea, Michael. That's not a good idea. Why would you do that? He placed himself in a position where he could do basically whatever he wanted. And I think... I don't know. I think that's a part of it as well that needs to sort of come out. Like a lot of fans will say things like, well, yeah, okay. Maybe he did have kids with him alone, but they didn't sleep in the bed with him. That's not true. They always slept on the floor. Well, that's not the case because in, even in living with Michael Jackson, Michael's on record saying that he had a bunch of Culkins in the bed with him all the time. Yeah. So he himself said that. Totally. (laughs) I think there is an issue though, that I, I do believe after 93, it stopped for a period. And I think this was a problem for the prosecution in the trial. And it was something that even Diane Diamond acknowledged at one point was a problem, which was that they have Michael Jackson portrayed as this compulsive abuser of children who's constantly seducing children into his bedroom. But between 93, between Chandler and Arviso, they can't find anyone that's been in his bedroom and i think i think he sorted himself out to an extent and lisa marie was a part of that and having kids was a part of that and then in the late 90s as he slipped back into this sort of drug adult state i think his decision making became extremely poor again poor and sloppy Mm. and i also my i personally think he was depressed my theory for many years has been that he was suffering from depression for the the majority of his later years. And you can see that manifested in many ways, um, but particularly in the lack of care 
taken in his appearance. You know, if you think of the Michael Jackson of the 80s and the early 90s, he would not be seen in public unless he was in specially custom tailored suits, unless he had his makeup done, unless he had his hair done. And then you cut to the Invincible era, and he is literally shuffling around in public in his pajamas, unshaven, with his hair standing on end, sometimes with tape across his nose, with scabs on his face. I mean, this was somebody who who just seemed like they had given up. Like, do you know what? I just don't care anymore. I just don't care. That was kind of the vibe that Michael was giving off around that era. And I think he was depressed, and I think he was medicating, and I think it was just a, a very dark period in his life and his decision making was was really really poor and it slipped as far as Arviso and then of course after the trial we never again we never hear of of this happening again there is no there is no boy that's sleeping in Michael's bed until Gavin Arviso shows up there is no boy that's sleeping in Michael's bed after Gavin Arviso leaves Neverland there he you know it was like on a, he went through this patch of crazy decision making where the changes he'd made in his life ended and there is even a degree of responsibility on display in terms of when gavin first asks to sleep in the bedroom michael says frank cassio has to be there as well but yeah i mean i i think of course he made lots of really 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 poor terrible terrible decisions and that's something that has to be addressed but as far as the the whole sleepovers thing it did seem to be something that pretty much ended with the allegations being made in 93. And then there was just this crazy blip, this aberration with Arviso. Curtis Robertson asks, Invincible is Michael's last album and probably worst in the eyes of a lot of people. But for me, it's one of his best. I have friends who aren't Michael Jackson fans and I've shown them Invincible and they think it's amazing and start downloading the album, almost like a lost Michael Jackson album. What positives can you say about Invincible? Well, this will be a short answer. <laughs> the positives would be, for me, there are about four songs on the album which aren't completely crap. And those songs would be, for me, You Rock My World, butterflies whatever happens and threatened as far as positives go i mean that pretty much is it i mean the vocals in many cases are extremely <laughs> bad the whole album sounded dated by the time it came out he has barely any creative input whatsoever he's you know has almost no writing input on a lot of the songs it's just a, just an awful. I mean, Heaven Can Wait is it has to be the worst vocal of Michael Jackson's entire career. He just sounds awful, and the song is good. Anyway, I'm I'm straying well, I'd into say one more chance, but so oh, one more chance also was very bad. You're right, that was. I mean, he did sound pretty bad on one more chance. Maybe recorded it the same day, but um, yeah. So so I've already exhausted the positives. I'm afraid those those are the positives. There are four passable songs, uh, which even then I, I'm not enamored. You know, overly enamored with the end. That's the end of my answer. Do you have any more positives than that? 
I, I made notes before this recording and my notes are very, very similar to what you just said. I also chose only four songs that I liked. Uh, three of them are the same. You Rock My World, Threatened and Butterflies. However, Whatever Happens is not one of my favorites. I don't like the uh, the vocals on that song very much. Uh, I don't think he sounds great. But I do think Break of Dawn is a great song. I can't bear Break of Dawn. I can't bear Break of Dawn because it has no credibility coming from Michael Jackson. You know, this is a guy who two years later, we were, or less than two, almost about 18 months later, we will see on our screens talking to Martin Bashir and saying, I am Peter Pan. My favorite thing to do <laughs> in the world is climb up a tree, you know, whatever. And then it, to hear him singing about, you know, walking through the park, making love till it's dark is just like, I don't believe this. And I think that anybody that finds this song credible is insane. It's It, it reminds me of when Michael <laughs> sang that other goofy song, We Be Balling You. And it's like, oh, really? Come on, Michael. You know what I mean? Yeah, I've never had that, though. Like, I don't need my Michael Jackson to be credible. I mean, this is the guy that turned himself into a robot in Moonwalker. So <laughs> I like that's not a factor for me. <laughs> but that's the problem. It's like, do you want to be the guy that turns yourself into a robot and has a magic star that turns you into a fucking car and, you know, then turns into a yellow shirted person doing a Beatles song and and rescues people from tarantulas or do you want to be Mr. Walking Through the Park making love? Because these are not the same <laughs> you thing. You know what I mean? It's not, it's not, you can't be both things. Yeah. So it's, it just coming from Michael Jackson seemed completely loopy and made about as much sense as, you know, Bob Hope releasing a cover of Sexy Motherfucker. Do you know what I mean? It just was insane. It was just a completely insane decision. Okay, Charlie, let's take our first break to chat about a very special sponsorship donation we've just received at the MJ Cast, and this one really warms my heart. Recently, a listener of the show who wants to remain anonymous sponsored us with $500. US Elise, Charlie Carter, Q, James, and the whole team are deeply, deeply honoured. This incredible sponsor had one request, that we shine a light on a particular charity, Children International. In addition to some of this important donation going to show running cost, podcasting equipment, etc., we've also contributed an amount from our overall profits to Children International at children.org. Growing up in poverty, children face tough challenges, hunger and malnutrition, limited access to education and medical services, social discrimination and isolation are just some of these things. But with support from people like us, we can help children get the healthcare, education, life skills, job readiness, training and confidence that they need to create lasting change in their lives and their communities. Together, we can end poverty for good. Children International accept one-off donation options which assist poverty-stricken families with food security, better hygiene, safe housing and even bedding and pillows which assist in restful sleep. You can also participate in a monthly donation program. In times of crisis, children in poverty are especially vulnerable and face uncertain futures. Your monthly gift of $36 will give your sponsored child access to life-changing benefits like medical care, educational support, life skills, and job training before graduation. 
As a sponsor, you'll be able to see your impact firsthand through letters and photos from your child. You'll see how much you're helping a child when they need it most. Use the search tool on children.org to find a child waiting for a sponsor like you. More information can be found at children.org. Again, our deepest thanks goes out to the anonymous sponsor for your contribution to the MJ cast and by extension, Children International. Charlie, let's get back to it. Curtis Robertson's next question. During This Is It, there are moments where Michael looks fragile and ill, like the start of The Way You Make Me Feel. Later on, when Michael is in the blue outfit, he looks like he's on top form. Same with They Don't Care About Us. He looks great and on form. Why is this? Uh, well, the the reason is that This Is It is filmed over a period of time and, and Michael was deteriorating. What you see in, in This Is It is a strange arc, actually, where in the very early footage so for example there's some footage of michael in like a blue almost like a bomber jacket thing and some gold trousers where he looks quite fit and able and then you move through the rehearsals for example where he's got that um big silver jacket on and he can't dance i mean you know that that footage of i remember when i went to see it in the cinema and the very first image of michael jackson that appears on the screen is of him supposedly having just jumped out of the light man and he's in he's swamped in this silver jacket he looks like a skeleton in a jacket and then the music starts and he tries to do like the sideways moonwalk and he can't do it he's basically tripping over his own feet but then there was this sort of um, revival, like just before he died. I think it was on the 23rd of June, the day they had the photographer in. I think his name was Kevin Mazer, came in and shot the pictures that would end up being released to the media of Michael in the grey suit and the red shirt and in the uh, smooth criminal outfit and so on. And he just, for some reason, seemed to be okay. And the story that Dr. Murray told was that he had been gradually weaning Michael off of the propofol and then right before Michael died, he started demanding the propofol again, and then it all went wrong and he died, effectively, was the story that was told to the court. So yeah, what you're watching is basically Michael Jackson just deteriorating, but they're showing it all out of order. By the way, off the strength of the MJ cast, the Talitha Linehan special, uh, I bought her book, and that is very much worth reading. I mean, it's... it's uh, she exudes a positivity about eras in Michael's life uh, for which I have little positive to say, but it's worth buying alone for the section on the last days of Michael's life. And I think that would give a very good insight into uh, what was going on. Yeah, I agree. And and uh, I actually, when, when I listened to that episode, which was phenomenal, well done, Elise, and um, Talitha and everybody involved in that, uh, I I went to the website which has all of the testimonies from fans just before Michael died. Fascinating, fascinating sources of information on what Michael was like. I can't remember which one it was that I read or the person's name, but there's one story where a lady is recounting Michael coming up to her and just repeating stuff over and over again, like randomly. I think he was saying something like, oh, it's wonderful to see you again. But he says it like a, a bunch of times, like he just forgot that he'd already said it. Uh, and it just kind of 
reminded me that some of the people in Jermaine's book who were there during the rehearsals said a very similar thing that Michael kept repeating himself all the time. So you've got multiple sources of information now from inside Staples and outside Staples saying pretty much the same thing about Michael's manner during this time. It's a very, very sad period of his life. Uh, and I guess that's why so many fans have an issue with this is it really is because it's not an accurate portrayal of his decline and what was really going on. I mean, that was never its purpose to start with, I guess, but but still it was, it's not very truthful, is it? Well, there was some emails that were made public by the Jacksons during the AEG wrongful death lawsuit. And one of them was an email that's, I forget who sent it. It may have been Randy Phillips, but I can't remember. Somebody sent an email saying, when you make the film, exclude all of the footage from this particular day because Michael looks so terrible. Because he, I think, the, I think they used, said skeletal. They said he looks so skeletal on this particular day that we mustn't use any of the footage. You, you know, it, if you want to know more, uh, in addition to Talitha's book and, of course, the, the pertinent chapter in Jermaine's book, it's quite easy to find a lot of the information that was aired at the AEG wrongful death lawsuit, which also gives an extremely vivid insight into what was going on, including a lot of emails uh, that were being sent contemporaneously. The one that was sent by Bugsy in particular is absolutely heartbreaking, where he's describing the deterioration that he's uh, witnessed in Michael Jackson over the previous weeks. And I think that I think he uses the phrase, doubt is pervasive. That when, when he's talking about whether these shows are ever going to happen, doubt is pervasive. It's, there's, a, there's a lot of information out there if you go looking for it. Gillian Rice asks a question straight for you, Charlie. How often do you listen to Michael's music and what are his top three songs? Well, almost never. I've got to be honest. I almost never listen to Michael's music at all. Extremely rare that I will listen to Michael's music. I'm Team Prince. I listen to Prince multiple times a week. I listen to James Brown a lot. I listen to Parliament Funkadelic a lot. Bootsy Collins. At the moment, I listen to Judith Hill a lot. I, it's vanishingly rare that I will choose to listen to a Michael Jackson song because I've kind of listened to them all to death because there isn't a lot that he left behind if you exclude all the Motown stuff when he was a kid, which I'm not really interested in, just because it's, you know, he had no real involvement in, in any of it. For me, there are like seven, no, not even that, there's not even seven good albums. So for me, you've got Destiny Triumph, Off the Wall, Thriller, Dangerous History, and the first half of Blood on the Dance Floor. I'm not a bad fan, unfortunately, and certainly not an Invincible fan. So you've got like six or six albums worth or something, and when you've listened to those albums for a lot of years, it's just hard to listen to them again because you're kind of not getting anything new from them. What are his top three songs? Uh, well, They Don't Care About Us is definitely... One of my top three is one that I come back to a lot when people ask me what my favorite Michael Jackson song is, just because of the, it just sort of is uh, representative of just my general anti-establishment, anti-authority attitudes. <laughs> and um, 
oh god it's really hard to say other than that because it would probably change you know if you asked me on a day when i was in a good mood then it might be different than if you asked me on a day when i was in a really bad mood <laughs> so but definitely they don't care about us um come on any keep, two that come keep to the mind. faith is a is one oh, that i return to if i'm going to listen to michael just for the vocals and particularly for the ad libs in the second half of the song I think if I have not listened to that song for a couple of years, which to be honest, that would that would usually be the case if I'm listening to it, then it means I've not listened to it for about a year or, or more. It Honestly, just how could gives you, you how could you choose keep the faith over Man in the Mirror? I just I prefer the vocal performance. I think the uh, that moment where it's building and building and building, and then all the music cuts out and the gospel choir is going, and Michael is really going for it over the top of the gospel choir a cappella just gives me goosebumps every time i hear it and maybe that's because i don't listen to it very often but it's it's incredibly powerful i think michael's vocal on that is blows man in the mirror out of the water and in fact isn't that the song where he broke the microphone i think, I think um i think so but yeah, yeah i think i think he, I think he that... broke the microphone I, I'm sorry, you, you've still got to give one more song, but I've always struggled with Keep the Faith. Like, I, And later on when we get to another question, we can talk about it a little bit more, but I don't know what it is about that song that really turns me off. I, I actually think it's a song I would remove from Dangerous and replace with, with something else. But it's something, I don't think it's to do with the vocal. I love the vocal. I'm right there with you on that. If it was just the vocal, I love it. It's something about the the production, like the, the percussion sounds very dated it's it does. i remember a, yeah, a review right. came out about dangerous at one point i don't know who wrote the review but a music critic said that the album sounds like somebody hit accidentally hit the surround sound button on the mixing console <laughs> for all the music <laughs> and that's what keep the faith sounds like to me it's like when i think of gospel music i think of something that's like really organic and not a lot of you know, um, tinkering done with the production. But the drums in that song sound very of their time and not like a real drum kit would sound. And I think that that's what turns me off a little. And the keys as well. It's, it sounds very sort of Casio keyboard aimed at age, you know, 9 to 12. But I think for me, you have to sort of endure the first two minutes and then the payoff Anyway, I don't listen to Michael's music very often, but I've just decided on my third, and it's that's what you get for being polite. Is um, right, it's a good one. Is you know what what a song? That's just a great song. Um, and the way again, the way that builds, you know, from the way it begins, you would never guess that it would that it would end. Is is such a big, powerful production. I think that's a great. I, I'm still so annoyed that those Jacksons, whatever they are, that they've just done that there's no physical release because I definitely would have booked because to get uh, remastered versions of, of destiny and triumph would have been great. Maybe I would have listened to Michael a bit more, but anyway, I've, I've really very, very rarely listened to Michael and not, not through, you know, any kind of antipathy. It's just cause I kind of feel like I'm not getting anything new. I mean, it's like, what, what am I getting out of listening to beat it? again 
You know what I mean? <laughs> it's just every time you turn on the radio, yeah. It's, you know, I I know Beat It now. I don't need to. I don't need to listen to Beat It for at least twenty years. So I'm the same as you, but with his performances, I still listen to his music all the time. Still love it. Get a lot out of it. But his performances, I can barely watch now because <laughs> I've seen each of the tours so many times. You know, there really is nothing new. I I watch Prince now way more than I watch Michael Jackson in terms of concerts. Well, it's because you get a lot more from Prince. You know, with Michael, if you've seen one bad concert, then you've seen the tour. You know, and Michael didn't do a lot of tours. He did, you know, as a as an adult solo artist, he did three tours. And one of them is a write-off completely. Um, so effectively, as a fan, you are left with two tours, one of which it still is not very good. So really, as a fan, you're left with one tour. And once you've seen one concert, you've seen the tour. So whereas with Prince, he would tour like every year, and every night he gets on stage and do a different show than he did the one before, with a different set list. And, you know, so as there's so much more variety that there's you can keep discovering new stuff and whereas with michael it's like there's nothing left to discover so you're just left watching the same things over and over and over again yeah and that's what i would say to michael jackson fans who are a little bit on the fence about prince i see a lot of people online michael fans who are like oh you know prince is boring whatever he didn't have many as many hits or (laughs) or whatever but the thing is this you know, speaking as primarily a Michael Jackson fan who is now a Prince fan, I think Prince's strength for me really lies in his versatility as a live performer. There are, I don't know how many high definition shows on YouTube, maybe four, five that you can watch for free, but I I really encourage any MJ fans out there to go and watch those because it, they are just incredible. The, the absolute versatility in terms of his his musicality on stage is truly, truly amazing. And that's where his strength is. He doesn't Prince doesn't need tanks coming out on the stage to try and entertain the audience. He does that just purely from his, you know, his his um, guitar work and and just the, the 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 fact that he mixes up songs so often in between shows. It's absolutely amazing. Not one show is exactly the same as another show. Yeah, I think the only exception to that might be some of the early tours, like maybe the Purple Rain tour, I think, was pretty uniform. But certainly from the late 80s onwards, when you went to a Prince gig, you didn't really know what you were going to get. So, you know, some of the shows that are available on YouTube are those Montreux shows from uh, 20... What Are they from 2013? Sometime Um, around then. Yeah, so those are three shows that he performed in about four days in Montreux, and they're all different. And in fact, not only different in terms of set list, but different in terms of the Prince that you see, because on night one and night two, you see Prince the band leader, Prince in the sort of the James Brown tradition band leader, who doesn't even pick up an instrument for the entire show and just spends the whole show as the front man, sort of singing and dancing. And then on show three, you get Prince the musician and it's like watching two different people and they're both amazing, but it's, it's such a different experience. And the thing about that is that it keeps it interesting for Prince as well as for the fans. And I think that part of Michael's hatred of touring, which he spoke about quite freely on 
multiple occasions probably stemmed from the fact that he had boxed himself into a situation where he'd rehearsed and rehearsed and planned these shows down to the most minute detail and just imagine how boring that must be to every time to just go up on stage and do the same thing click your fingers in the same spot point at the a particular corner of the arena in the same moment to even say i love you in the same moment in the same intonation night after night after night like a little music box that you wind up and just let it play it must be so mind numbing and i think by certainly by history but arguably by dangerous you can see that he is sort of mentally checked out in a lot of those concerts uh, so you know i think that i think that the way prince did it kept it kept him vital and he looked like he was having fun and when the person you're watching looks like they're having fun it's a lot easier for you as the audience member to have fun and uh, that's one of my biggest issues with the history tour is that it's like, how can you, you know, we know that he didn't want to be on this tour. We know that. We know now from testimony in the AG trial that he was being drugged. So how can you take pleasure? I can't, I can't take pleasure in watching that, watching somebody who's being drugged and forced on stage against their will under duress. How can I watch that and enjoy it? I can't watch that and enjoy it. And I find it weird that some fans are prepared to just go, Oh, uh, I don't. I don't think about that. I just, you know, like just pretend that that's not happening. We know that that was happening. Now you can't, you can't unknow that. Anyway, I've gone <laughs> off on a tangent. But um, what was the question? Um, oh, you were talking about, you know, it was the question about um, Michael's best songs, and then you were talking yeah. about performances. <laughs> we yeah, went on okay, an right. extreme tangent. Yeah. <laughs> That's all right. Okay. Question from Wendy. Can you tell us what you know about all of the aftermath of his injuries during the 1999 concert? I'm assuming she's talking about the MJ and Friends concerts in Korea and Munich. Like medically, how was he treated? How people around him responded to it and more? I'll start off with this one. I know virtually nothing about that. I've never spoken to anybody who knows anything about it. However, I will say that in my mind as a fan, 1999 really appears to be the last kind of normal year <laughs> for Michael Jackson before everything started really, really, really going south. You know, I've watched the footage many times where that big bridge thing falls down. Um, it doesn't like free fall. It's still sort of connected to these wires that slow its rate of descent, but it does definitely fall and Michael does definitely hit the ground quite harshly, still continues to perform after that. I I don't actually know the extent to the damage that caused him or the impact that had on him, but I would say that that period of time represents the last kind of normal year for Michael Jackson in my mind. Absolutely. I mean, 1999 was the last time that Michael Jackson looked like Michael Jackson until 2009. In terms of, you know, do I know what his medical record said? No, I don't. I believe that Karen Fay testified under oath that he had cracked a vertebrae. I, I think that's what she said. I'm not sure. But, you know, it was clearly, it was clearly not severe enough to stop him from, you know, carrying on with the performance. Um, 
which he did. He did carry on with the performance, but according to Karen, as soon as he walked off after that performance, he collapsed. I mean, who knows? It's certainly he, as you say, after that performance, there is a marked deterioration in in Michael's um, appearance, in his behavior. He clearly gets slightly out of shape, presumably through inability to exercise because of his back. I think somebody once said to me, I've never, you know, I've never gone back and, and watched it to check, but I think it was Sam Habib um, from the MJ Academia Project said that in the Bashir documentary, there's uh, some footage from one of the Neverland interviews where you can see that Michael is wearing a back brace. I think that injury is the catalyst for everything that went wrong, which, you know, ultimately culminated in Michael's trial. But do I know, do I have any sort of insider information about what his injuries were? No, I don't. I don't know. Wendy has another question. Do you think Dan Reed, she calls him something else, but I'm not going to say it. Do you think Dan Reed is going to make Leaving Neverland 2? Well, I'll start with that one. Charlie, I think your answer will be a lot more detailed, but I think we do know that he's trying to make Leaving Neverland 2 because he's filming the trial proceedings, the Wade and Jimmy trial that's going on right now. Uh, We have some inside information uh, around what's going on and what it's going to be about, and I guess we're just kind of waiting and holding our breath around what it's going to be. It does concern me deeply. The good news is, I guess, the trial that's taking place is not going the way that he wants it to go. Jimmy's part of the trial has already been dismissed. The The lawyer keeps getting pinged for really inappropriate, unprofessional behavior. You know, more and more lies are kind of <laughs> coming out and being exposed. I don't think it's going the way that, that Dan wants. The problem that I see is that Michael <laughs> surrounded himself like we've said earlier in this show, with families that wanted to take advantage of him. And many of them have already, like the Arvizos and Robsons and you name it, there's lots. There's some families with with children that Michael knew at the time who haven't taken advantage of Michael yet uh, or they have but in other ways. For example, the Casio family with their fake songs against Michael Jackson. So what concerns me more than Dan making another Leaving Neverland about Wade and James is other men creating or fabricating allegations now that Dan could pick up and make another documentary about. That's what concerns me. Yeah, so I think it's pretty well known that Dan Reed has signed up to make Leaving Neverland 2 I think is pretty well known that he's filming. It was supposed to be about the appeals, which is a whole sort of hypocrisy and a sort of a bit of mental gymnastics anyway, because of course on the campaign trail for leaving Neverland one, uh, he is insisting in interview after interview that these guys don't care about money and that their lawsuits are all about raising the profile of abuse victims and being a voice for victims and then having been given the biggest platform of any alleged victims in history 
they nonetheless continue to pursue their lawsuits for hundreds of millions of dollars. And then Dan Reed signs up to make a documentary about it, having previously spent a month on the campaign trail, insisting that they don't want any money. So he signs up to make Leaving Neverland Part 2, which is supposed to follow these guys through their appeals. Now, the problem for Dan Reed, Dan Reed is partisan. He's made no effort to uh, conceal the fact that he's partisan and in fact has admitted on many occasions in interviews that he believes Wade and Jimmy and that he is partisan. And therefore it's obvious that he would have wanted part two to pursue a particular narrative. What has happened in court is that that narrative has not been fulfilled. So James Savechuck's case has been tossed out of court. The, as you say, the lawyer was sanctioned financially by the judge and chewed out publicly in court uh, by the judge for inappropriate conduct. Every motion that they've brought, they've lost. Every publicity stunt has failed to result in any positive progress for them in their lawsuit. Wade Robson's case is destined to be thrown out because it must be considered under the exact same legal framework under which James Safechuck's case was thrown out. So Dan Reed is left having signed up to make part two, but essentially with no usable material, or certainly no usable material that fits the narrative that he would want to portray. So, you know, what is the next move for Dan Reed? I mean, you know, assuming that there are no sudden new accusers who have somehow flown under the radar, uh, certainly the lawyers have not filed lawsuits. They've not added anybody to the lawsuit. It's, it's still just Wade and Jimmy. So... I mean, what is what does that leave him with? And uh, there was an article that was published about a month ago by Variety or someone which said that Leaving Neverland 2 was now going to focus on how Wade and Jimmy dealt with the blowback from Michael's biggest fans after the documentary came out. So effectively, it sounds like quite a petty, vindictive attack on people who discredited Dan Reed's work. And what he will be doing is juxtaposing people making valid criticisms of his documentary with sort of weepy footage of uh, Wade and Jimmy sort of saying, look at these terrible victim blamers, you know, so it would just be another, another edition of the uh, mainstream media's ongoing serialization of why we think the right to the presumption of innocence should be destroyed and taken away and all allegations should result in an assumption of guilt. I think that's what I think it, assuming that it doesn't just get cancelled because it, there's nothing to actually make it about all they're going to be able to cobble together is some petty reactionary whinging and griping about valid criticisms of the first documentary. I think that's what it's going to be. Almost, I think it's going to be in self-indulgent rant with Dan Reed seeking to settle scores against people who have criticised him. I, personally, I, I 
I think that's all he's got. I don't think he's got anything else that, that he could make out of what's happened since 2019. So, you know, I mean, we, we just have to wait and see uh, what it becomes. You know, I don't have a crystal ball. I assume he will make it, particularly if he signed a contract which says he has to make it. But, I, uh, you know, who knows? Just have to wait and see. I'll probably be in it. So who, well, I'll have to wait and see. <laughs> I imagine. I, I mean, maybe. I, who knows? Will Will any broadcaster actually air that? Will they air Dan Reed just saying, these are people that criticize my documentary and this is why I think they're rubbish? I mean, it would be unbelievably piss poor for any broadcaster to actually greenlight and air that. But. I mean, I thought the decision to air the original was pretty poor, so I, I don't put anything past them. Anal Juichi asks, do you like John Branker? And tell me all the reasons why not. I'll go with this one. <laughs> no, I don't like John Branker. I don't like him because Michael didn't like him, uh, but also because of the gaslighting that has taken place since Michael passed away and the Casio tracks happened. This constant, constant paternalist sort of treatment of the Michael community, of him constantly talking us down and saying, no, you know, it's fine. Everything's okay. The Casio tracks are fine. I don't think he takes feedback from the community. I think he just does what he wants. I don't think he places much emphasis on treating Michael's legacy with care or the care that it deserves. I don't see him setting up an expert team of people collecting and archiving and remastering Michael Jackson footage and coming up with great products. And I don't see him stewarding Michael's estate or legacy very well at all. Since day dot, it's been a bit of a nightmare. I think about him sidelining the Jackson family. I don't see him trying to right any wrongs that have been done. How could you like him? I'd flip the question around and ask people, why do you like him? Because... <laughs> uh, <laughs> Yeah, I think he's a pretty negligent man. I think when you flip that question around, the response that comes back is always, look at the numbers, right? So Michael has been the number one earning dead celebrity every year since he died. So the argument, the counter-argument that comes from the estate's defenders is you can't argue with the facts, right? But, you know, is it, we don't know because there's never been any other administration of the Michael Jackson estate. We don't know whether that estate is quite, we don't know whether Michael is the highest earning dead celebrity because they're doing an amazing job running the estate or because he's Michael Jackson. Would the estate also, would it still be the highest earning deceased entertainers estate if, you know, if I was running it, if you were running it? We don't actually know. So maybe it would be earning more. It might be earning more if you were running it. We, we don't know because it's never been tested. So I kind of have a problem with that logic. As far as the, the wording of the question, do you like John Branker? I've met John Branker, albeit very briefly. He was perfectly polite to me and I was polite to him. And I have no... I have no negativity to report about that interaction. John Branker is the executor of the estate. I certainly have huge issues 
with many decisions of the Michael Jackson estate, which have been voiced on many previous episodes of the, of the MJ cast at, at length ad nauseum. You know, I, I certainly, I did not like, I, I think This Is It was a propaganda piece and was dishonest and unfortunately contradicted. It was it was designed to portray Michael Jackson as being super fit and healthy and ready to go on tour. He wasn't. That had the effect of essentially portraying all those who said that he was not fit and he was not able as liars and troublemakers. Um, in particular, I remember that when Jermaine's book came out, Jermaine's uh, autobiography, there was a chapter in there about This Is It, which was based on the testimonies of numerous people. Shortly after that book came out, John Branca was interviewed on the Piers Morgan show when Piers Morgan was still doing the Larry King gig. And Piers Morgan asked John Branca, do you know where this is coming from? You know, this stuff in Jermaine's book, do you believe it? Do you think it's true? And John Branca said, I don't know where he's got that from. And, and I know nothing about Michael not being fit and well. Now, when the AEG trial came around, a number of emails and email chains were placed in the public domain, which showed that John Branca had in fact been copied in on a chain of emails and had participated in a chain of emails before Michael died about what they were going to do about his failing health. So certainly it's hard to defend John Branca going on TV and essentially rubbishing Jermaine's book and portraying it as a load of conspiracy theory and nonsense and disavowing all knowledge of, of the information it contained when in fact evidence would be published a while later demonstrating that he did know at the time and he was perfectly well aware of the issues. It's hard to, you know, when you're talking about the estate, there are multiple people involved in the estate at different levels. And so, I mean, but, but the buck stops with John Branca. But I, what I don't want to do is sort of say, oh, John Branca is, you know, it's John Branca's fault that Bad 25 had a Pitbull remix on it. Because I don't, I don't know who took that decision. But I, I'm perfectly comfortable saying almost nothing that the Michael Jackson estate has done in the last 10 years or more do I think has been particularly good. In fact, the only thing that I can point to and say has been well handled is the uh, the Wade and Jimmy lawsuit, where I think the legal work that's been done on that has been exceptional, and that they have succeeded in every area. You know, in every in every area where they could possibly succeed, they have succeeded. Beyond that. I have nothing particularly positive to say about the Michael Jackson estate. Although uh, at the same time, uh, sorry, I'm giving a long answer again, but at the same time, I don't necessarily share a lot of the fans' criticisms. Like when they say, oh, look what this, look what the Prince estate has done. And why don't you release a, a, a history anniversary edition with 50 unreleased songs on it? Well, because there aren't 50 unreleased, you know, they can't just... Well, I was just going to say they can't just magic up some non-existent songs, but oops. So, <laughs> but uh, you know, uh, anyway, I could I could talk for three hours about the many many decisions of the Michael Jackson estate, which I feel have been extremely damaging and and wrong-headed. But you know, if if you want to listen to me talking about that, then just go back through the MJ Cast archive. Yeah, I think 
for me, it's the, the core of why I'm, I'm not a big supporter of John Branker is his treatment of the beneficiaries and the Jackson family. Uh, there are numerous, numerous instances of them wanting to do things like tribute concerts or books or, um, you know, actively campaigning against some of the executives' decisions where they've been completely silenced. And these are the people that are that are beneficiaries. They are the ones that are that Michael had in his will uh, that are to be reaping the rewards of what the estate's job is. And for them to be sidelined, for the people that, you know, Michael's own mother and children to be sidelined, that to me is just an unfor- unforgivable set of decisions. Uh, yeah. So uh, that's the that's where I guess a lot of the uh, the problems stem from. I would I would agree um, there that there is there has been treatment alleged of of Catherine in particular, which would be really hard to um, really hard to justify or to defend in any way. I think that another example of that was the AEG trial, where the estate effectively sided with AEG instead of siding with its own beneficiaries. It's supposed to act in the interests of its beneficiaries. But on the eve of that trial, it uh, essentially came out in defense of AEG instead of coming out in defense of its own beneficiaries, which was pretty deplorable, I think. Question from Bob. Sounds like one for you, Charlie. Were you surprised the court dismissed the James Safechuck lawsuit? No, not surprised at all. I mean, it's, um, it's, uh, I think it's important for fans to understand that this case has not been thrown out based on its evidential merits in the sense that this is not a judge declaring Michael Jackson innocent. This is a technicality. The whole case revolves. So they tried to bring, initially they tried to bring their cases against Michael Jackson's estate. They could not do that because they were out of time. That's why Wade Robson was caught lying under oath. He was caught perjuring himself when he claimed that he was justified in bringing his case out of time because he didn't know Michael Jackson had an estate, even though he did. So they had to ditch their cases against the estate. So although people generally speak about Wade and Jimmy seeking money from Michael's estate, on paper, that's not what they're doing. They then filed new lawsuits against Michael Jackson's companies. They had to be companies that existed before Michael Jackson died and with which they had some involvement. So, for example, MJJ Productions, if they were involved with MJJ Productions, etc., or any company that may have had a duty of care over them. So, for example, if they say they were abused at Neverland, and there was a company which was responsible for managing Neverland Ranch at the time, and that company still exists, then they can sue that company for failing to exercise a duty of care. So that's what they're doing now. But the reason that these lawsuits are not proceeding to trial is because of a legal issue. And the issue is, did the companies that they're suing have the power to control Michael Jackson? And what the, the estate's lawyers have argued effectively is Michael Jackson was the owner and operator and controller of all of these companies. He was the CEO. He was the boss. So the idea that the, these companies could have controlled Michael Jackson is lunacy because Michael Jackson controlled these companies. So you're suing companies for failing to protect you, but there's... The person that ran that company is the person that you're saying 
you needed protecting from. So this is a nonsensical lawsuit. So effectively, they're trying to bring a lawsuit which makes no sense. It makes no logical sense. And that's why it keeps getting thrown out. And that's why it was thrown out the first however many times. And that's why it's been thrown out again. So I was not remotely surprised. But equally, I'm not going to be surprised when they keep going back again. Of course, despite Dan Reed insisting they don't want any money, when they keep going back and again and again and again and again and continually trying to sue for these hundreds of millions of dollars despite not wanting any money, that's I think that's a pattern that's going to repeat itself for a long time. Okay, next one's from Johnny. Any idea why Michael Jackson used to let Prince have his hair bleached at such a young age? Always wondered and unsure if it has ever been answered. Very young age to colour a child's hair. Maybe the freedom of expression he allowed his children behind closed doors? I've met Prince a couple of times. I never thought to ask him about the bleaching of his hair. I'm afraid I have no insider knowledge on that issue so i just can't answer yeah i also have no idea why that happened uh i would say that like we said earlier in the show michael made a lot of decisions that normal individuals struggle to kind of understand or relate to the bleaching of his child's hair is an odd one it's kind of like to me the mannequins you know <laughs> surrounding himself with mannequins in his house all the time or, or the sleepovers, you know, there are there are parts of Michael's life that are difficult to go. Oh, why? You know, why would you do that? And I, I know uh, it's a touchy subject, really, because I know a lot of fans tend to have an issue with Michael's choices pertaining to his own children, especially when considering Michael's own ethnicity. It's a deeply personal topic that I don't really feel qualified to comment on. I don't think we'll ever understand some of these choices because Michael isn't here to ask. But but I do know some of these choices, like, you know, bleaching Prince's hair blonde, is something that particular fans still take issue with. I think Johnny words the question as Michael letting Prince bleach his hair. Or have his hair bleached, he says. Or have his hair bleached. But if, if you watch, you know, you can watch a lot of home movies of... Michael and his kids, which have leaked out over the years because various individuals chose to sell them to media organizations. And there is footage of Prince with his hair bleached where he can barely speak. You know, he can barely string a sentence together because he's so young. So I think any suggestion that that was Prince's idea is tenuous. As I say, I've never asked him about it, but I I do think that that was actually a choice of Michael's uh, as opposed to Prince's because it's just difficult to imagine the child in those videos who is so extraordinarily young, essentially a toddler, having somehow conjured the idea of bleaching his hair blonde and then approached his dad and asked about it. It, it seems almost inconceivable. Bella asks, are you ever going to do the estate round table episode you've been teasing us with for years and <laughs> the answer is, yes, I want to. Uh, there's a lot of planning involved in bringing that together because people need to be given a lot of time in advance to come up with their own uh, responses. The whole I the concept of that episode and idea of that episode is that, you know, a, a number of us, maybe four to six of us, would have time in advance to create an alternate hypothetical plan 
if we were in charge of Michael Jackson estate, you know, just putting ourselves in the position of being John Branker in 2009, what would we do as a 10-year plan? And then each participant in the show would come to the table with a plan of what we would do. And then uh, the audience or listeners would have some way to vote on um, each of our, you know, plans. And then there'd be a winner at the end of who has the best plan. Uh, so, yes, I do definitely want to do that, not only because I think it's an interesting idea for an episode, but also because friend of the show, Damien Shields, would probably kill me if I never actually ended up doing it. Uh, so, yeah, it'll happen one day. And, Charlie, you'll be on that roundtable. Yeah, I would assume I would be. I would quite. It sounds like a great idea. I think there may be a slight caveat that I'll need to know who else is on because there are certain individuals whose uh, positions on the estate sort of might give me a heart attack if I had to listen to them at length. But <laughs> I, I think there's a 90% chance I'll be on. Very good. Very good. Okay. Genevieve Castello Branco asks, Marcos Cabota's documentary, Sonic Fantasy, is completed, but he's facing legal issues to release it. Any details about about such legal issues that probably involve Bruce Swedean's estate? Is there possibility? And uh, I'll speak to that one. Uh, we do know a little bit more about that than we're allowed to say. There are definitely legal issues going on. To my knowledge, those legal issues are not to do with Bruce Swedean's estate. But if you just think back on the entity that has made it difficult for various documentarians and authors to release their projects, uh, then I think you'll probably stumble upon the answer of why Marcos is finding it difficult to get this one out. Yeah, the documentary started off, I think, as a Bruce Swedean one and then ended up becoming a more broad documentary about Michael recording his album Thriller with a lot of Bruce in it. So I, I really still want it to come out, but I do know that he's facing a lot of complex issues around getting it out as an unofficial product. All right. Bob asks, and I'd love to hear your answer to this question, Charlie, off the wall or purple rain? Oh, wow. Um, They're literally the first two words of my note <laughs> under that question. One. Oh, wow. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. That's, I, I just find that almost impossible to, um, to answer. I mean, what if the question is what one am I more likely to listen to tomorrow? Then the answer is Purple Rain. Again, I just kind of feel like I've exhausted Michael's discography many years ago, and I rarely listen to any of it. So I'm more likely to listen to Purple Rain tomorrow. I think there are individual songs on Off the Wall which are more complex and intricate than anything on Purple Rain. So, for example, Don't Stop Till You Get Enough and Working Day and Night, incredibly complex songs, and the age that Michael was when he wrote them as well, which I think he must have been a teenager when he wrote them, the layers upon layers upon layers of rhythm and the way they come together to create those tracks is unbelievable. The technical genius is just unbelievable. So if you were to... If you were to put Don't Stop Till You Get Enough or Working Day and Night up against any track on Purple Rain, I would probably say that Don't Stop Till You Get Enough and Working Day and Night are superior. As an album, I think that Purple Rain is more cohesive. It's more, 
it just fits together better you know off the wall michael's albums are strange albums in a way because it's almost like and certainly even more so as as his career went on it's almost like i've got to have one of these type of songs on it and then one of that type of song on it and one of that and then one of these and you know that this audience will like that song and, and the girls will like that song and these so it's almost like focus group album creation whereas because of the speed with which prince would release albums there's he usually was in a particular state of mind and you can and the albums feel cohesive and like they belong together so you know off the wall you get moments of absolute amazing genius which are on the par with anything michael ever did in his career like don't stop to get enough from working day at night but then you also get girlfriend and you get kind of pretty corny sort of she's out of my life type tracks which i can't i just can't envisage myself ever in the rest of my life going do you know what i feel like listening to today she's out of my life i just can't imagine <laughs> that happening i just can't so i so the honest answer is purple rain but with the caveat that i do think don't stop to get enough from working day and night are both more complex as individual songs than anything that's on purple rain yeah that's going to be a hard argument to try and counter i don't even know if i'll, I'll try to i would probably side with off the wall uh even though i respect the pure genius of purple rain for sure i find off the wall to be a little bit more cohesive than purple rain to be honest in terms of instruments used and themes that flow throughout it and you know off the wall was recorded in a very short space of time compared to michael's other albums and a lot of the session musicians that are on the songs are on all of the other songs in and just in terms of the sound of of the different instruments used i find it you know uh, a bit more cohesive and consistent between songs and that's the thing i like most about albums is consistency between the songs uh, i know a lot of other people are different and they like variation and, and in their albums and that's fine but for me off the wall is michael's most cohesive album and that's why it's my favorite uh, michael jackson album and yeah I, I don't know i just i just think it's a, it's a wonderful album in terms of its mix as well it's it sounds to this day sounds incredibly crisp and beautiful and purple rain it's i know it's a little bit more of a raw rocky kind of album but i also have never been that impressed by its mix in the in the versions of purple rain that i've listened to at least it, you know doesn't sound sonically as crisp as the way yeah the i agree i've never listened to the remaster that came out a few years ago but from the prince estate an interesting story about the purple rain album which you may not know is that a lot of it is built around a live feed so prince and the band the revolution they played a gig in minneapolis a charity gig where they played a lot of if not all of the tracks from purple rain live for the first time before the album had come out and they took the recording of that concert and then used it as the bedrock of the album and then just put some extra stuff over the top of it so that's why i think some of the sound is a bit sort of muddy is because mm. they felt that the way they played the songs that night there was some sort of magic in that performance and that they just wanted to use that performance as 
the foundation for the album and it reminds yeah. me of something that some one of i forget who told me this somebody i interviewed once who worked with james brown it was one of his session musicians or touring musicians they said it was holly farris holly farris was james brown's band leader for many many years from about the late 70s onwards and he said he james brown almost invariably when they went into the studio he would line the musicians up he'd say right i've got a song this is your part this is your part this is your part this is your part we're going to run it through now and they would run it through and they go great right that's what we're going to release and they'd be going well hang on we've only just learned the song like i didn't i definitely fucked part of it up and you know and he used to say the first take is god the second take is man that was his <laughs> saying i think that prince was having a sort of a james brown trip when he decided you know that gig there was something magic in that gig so they use that gig and essentially when you listen to the album you're listening to a a live show with the audience removed and just with a bit of polish over the top yeah yeah that's interesting i've never heard that before i i tend to think of it as i don't know maybe i'm just so uneducated on prince that i'm not thinking of it in the right way but the purple rain album sounds like a, a wonderful prince album off the wall and thriller to me are well they're called the dream team for a reason right quincy jones bruce wadeen and michael jackson it's kind of like a off the wall to me represents this amazing creative synergy between three really amazing pioneers in their field fields you know Quincy bringing absolute A-game musicians like Lewis Johnson from the Brothers Johnson on bass and Jerry Hay and these different people to the team to give the songs this incredible polish that they couldn't have gotten from anybody else. Bruce Swedean being one of the best musical engineers that have ever existed, completely pioneering with his way of recording sound. And then Michael Jackson at the peak of his creativity as well you know the three of them coming together is what makes off the wall and thriller so unique and special so i don't i don't even just think of it like a michael jackson album it's it's the creative these components coming together all to make this brilliant masterpiece so i don't know maybe you could say the same thing about prince i don't know who else was involved in purple rain and where they were at in their careers but for me yeah slightly just towards off the wall minus girlfriend I will agree with you on that. <laughs> and there's a good there's a good question coming up about that soon, actually. I can't wait to get to that. Anyway, so let's move on. Captain Blackthorn has the next question. Which song has Michael's most impressive vocal performance? And his vote is for Earth Song or Billie Jean. Charlie. I would say I, I, it probably would be Earth Song or Keep the Faith. It has to be one of those two. Yeah, I could, I, it's difficult for me to decide on the spot between them. I think Earth Song is a more impressive overall production, but I've never got goosebumps listening to Earth Song, I don't think, whereas I have many times when Keep the Faith, you know, that particular moment in Keep the Faith where all the music cuts out and Michael's just going completely bonkers with the ad-libs. It's got to be one of those two. What do you think? Well... 
I it's interesting how songs strike people differently because I would say the exact opposite for me. I would say Earth Song gives me goosebumps nearly every time I listen to it, even till today. Whereas Keep the Faith doesn't. I'm going to have to listen to Keep the Faith again after this episode. Now that you've spoken so much about it <laughs> and revisit it, but Earth Song for sure for me is, um, in my opinion, his best vocal performance because Earth Song is a production where no matter where or how it's playing. <laughs> I got to stop what I'm doing to listen to it, whether it's, you know, on TV or whatever it is, I've got to stop and I've got to appreciate it. I can't just have it in the background. It is just such a immense production that just draws you in. And he really put everything into it, didn't he? Like, I mean, this song was, I don't know how, it was in production, I think for over a decade. It, it had such a long life um, in terms of evolving into where it got to. I think... Earth Song for me features his two styles of singing. It's got smooth delivery in the vocal like he did in his earlier career, but then finishes with that really gritty scream that he was most famous for sort of after bad. I I just think it's got everything in it and it just soars and it's beautiful. The lyrics of the call and response section is just so poetic and beautiful. The only thing I would say that taints its legacy a little bit is that the live or quote unquote live performances of it uh, stick in my head and I wish they didn't because they're not good. They're really not good. I don't think Michael ever did a good live performance of, of Earth Song, even the Brunei one that everybody talks about being amazing. The last section, sure, it's, it's pretty cool, but overall, yeah. yeah. The video is wonderful, but the the live videos of it, are not and i wish they didn't exist yeah the video is one of the best videos of his career i think i think the interesting thing about keep the faith in earth song is they also they both have interesting stories behind the vocals so with keep the faith they recorded the song and then michael did not record the ad-libs and by the time he came back to record the ad-libs his voice had changed his voice had grown deeper and he could not hit the notes on that final section, the ad lib section. And there was uh, a story that was published, I think, in Rolling Stone, in a feature in Rolling Stone, that Michael was crying in the studio because he could not get his voice to where it needed to be to hit those notes. So I think they brought the whole song down an octave or something like that. And then Michael came back into the studio to re-record you know to attempt to gain his ad-lib gospel vocals for the second half of the song and he went for it so full pelt that he broke the microphone with the power of his voice i'm sure brad sundberg said that the industry term for it was crunching the dolbies he basically <laughs> he sang so hard that the the little thing inside the microphone the vibrates just crumpled and died just gave up the ghost halfway through the air halfway <laughs> through and um and then with earth song when michael recorded the ad lib the sort of gospel ad lib section for the second half of earth song he was ill he didn't think he was going to be able to do it and then one of the engineers that was working on the project told him some story about a john lennon song some John Lennon song that became one of the most famous songs of his career or something. I don't know anything about John Lennon, but some, some, I forget, whatever, some John Lennon thing. And basically inspired Michael to go into the studio and just power through it and get the vocal down 
And so that's what you hear on the record is, is those vocals, which are just unbelievable anyway. They were actually recorded when he was ill. He was sick and uh, he didn't think he was going to be able to record at all. And you ended up with one of the greatest Michael Jackson vocals of his entire career. All right, Charlie, let's take our second and final break to talk about the MJ Cast's shop. If listeners want to know the best way that they can support the MJ Cast, grabbing something from our shop is probably the best way they can do it. You can access it through going to themjcast.com slash shop to see all of our merch. And of course, it's filled out with eight great designs. Let me go through what they are now. These designs include our classic sunset logo, which is probably our most popular design. Uh, Also, all nine of our seasonal logos in a grid pattern on one design and we've also got two really cool 80s retro pixel art style designs one of which is called the pixel tour featuring michael jackson in all of his solo tour opening costumes and then one called victory which has uh, standing side by side pixelated versions of the jackson brothers on the victory tour two of my personal favorite designs Uh, Okay, now, what else have we got? So we've got some text-based designs, which are also really super popular. And uh, just imagine those uh, funky Helvetica list-style designs that you see people getting around in. Well, we've made some of those for some key elements of the Jackson world. Uh, You've got the Jackson Brothers names from, from obviously the band, the Jacksons, all in one spot. You've got the Captain EO characters, which I know... My co-host Elise absolutely loves. We've got all of Michael Jackson's adult solo albums all in one spot in that list style design. And very recently, we've added a new design to the store, which is the brothers from 3T, Taj, Tarrell and TJ, their names all in one spot. So if you want to rep 3T like I know you really want to do, we all love 3T, then head over and grab our 3T design as well. We absolutely love 3T's music, and it's great to rep that band from the Jackson family as well. All right, so uh, just to remind people, all proceeds go to show running costs, charities, and equipment for podcasting. Uh, we, we make sure that we give back as much as we can every year. When we publicize this on, on social media, we, we make sure to give to causes that we think Michael definitely would have believed in. For example, Children International at children.org, the charity organization that we spoke about earlier in the show. So grab something from the MJCast shop. You can reach it at themjcast.com slash shop. Just head over there and uh, grab something and make sure you wrap it out in public. If you're wearing a t-shirt or you've got a mug or something like that, uh, and or maybe a hoodie, a phone case, a tote bag, any of those great things that you can buy from our store. Make sure you get a selfie with it. Send it through to themjcast at icloud.com, which is our email address, themjcast at icloud.com. We'll make sure to, to put that out on social media so other MJ fans around the world can see you repping some cool MJ stuff. Uh, thank you very much to those of you who have already bought something from the MJCast shop. We deeply appreciate it. It really helps uh, us keep doing what we're doing with all of our uh, show running costs. Charlie, let's get back to it. Captain Blackthorn also asks, do we know any details about the Lost Classical album that Michael worked on before his passing? Honestly, we don't know a whole lot, uh, only that he was working with David Michael Frank, uh, who originally worked on the You Were There performance with Michael in 1989, which was a tribute to the late, great Sammy Davis Jr., 
apparently at his Holmby Hills home, Michael showed David Michael Frank two demos during their meeting and uh, they were apparently pretty impressive or classical compositions that Michael had done. And Frank says that there was another song that Michael had, but it was completely composed in his head and there was no demo. So Michael had to sing parts to him. There was apparently also a jazz piece that Michael was working on, but there's not a whole lot more information out there about that. I don't think they progressed any further than those kind of meetings. David Michael Frank also incidentally has said that when he met Michael in those final days, that he looked remarkably thin. So again, very similar to those uh, stories we were hearing earlier on in the episode. But uh, yeah, it's a shame that Michael wasn't able to see that through. I think it would have been really interesting as he matured as an artist to, to hear some some classical or jazz pieces from him. I agree. I think the the fact that he was working on a jazz piece is completely... I've never heard that before. That's complete news to me. That would have been really interesting to hear Michael kind of... Because I sort of got the feel. I mean, you know, we're sort of harking back to what we were saying about Invincible, but I kind of got the feeling that Michael was sort of done with the whole pop music thing and certainly a lot of the the demos that have come out, that have leaked out, that he was working on in his final years are really is hard to imagine them ever having turned into anything that was worth releasing. So if his if it where he was really creatively inspired and, and excited was to go off and work in classical or to work in jazz, it would have been interesting to hear him doing something that he was genuinely passionate about and that was different from anything he'd done before. I would have been very interested to hear that. Friend of the show, Marnie Cochran asks, Dear Charles what is the most interesting or surprising thing that you learned about Michael Jackson, his life or his work while working on the documentary with Taj and other collaborators, which was totally new to you? Hmm. Which was totally new to me. Well, of course the, uh, the whole story from Carol Lemire, which just completely came out of the blue and nobody was expecting her to tell about having been in the room when Michael received a phone call from Geordie Chandler telling him, I'm so sorry, my dad's making me tell these stories and I don't want to do it and blah, 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 and that Michael and Geordie were both crying to each other down the phone. I think that was pretty astonishing and startling. It's, it's really hard to think of something that was actually new to me because it's just something I've been, you know, studying for so long. Yeah, I think, I think, I think that story from Carol Lemire was, was really quite shocking and was not the only shocking and amazing story she told us. It really, that one really did sort of knock us over because we knew that we were going there to talk to her about the Arviso case and we had no concept that we were going to come away with with brand new information about the Chandler case. That was absolutely staggering. Anita asks, how do we manage that Jamin and Elise will be invited to the next Halloween party hosted by the Jackson family? <laughs> Great question. <laughs> I would love to go and experience what Charlie did. However, I live in Australia and it would be a ridiculous amount of money for me to fly to America. <laughs> and uh, I can't see it happening, even though that would be an absolute dream come true. Elise, however, lives in California. So yes, I think it would be amazing if Elise could go. You should definitely start saving because we could like rent an Airbnb with three bedrooms in it that would not be too expensive. So you, your main your main expense would be the flight. And 
if it just is such a crazy opportunity to turn down if it were to arise. Oh, if it if it came up, like if it was a thing, then I'd have to think long and hard about it. But <laughs> I probably wouldn't be the kind of person to go there on the hope that something like that could happen. It'd have oh, to no, be no, a pretty no, locked no. in thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And also it would be insane to fly to America just to do that. You'd have to sort of book a whole trip around it and, and make it worth going there. But um, I don't know if those parties are going to happen again. I don't know because um, they were Bee Gees invention and they were invent they were invented by Bee Gees as a, a treat an annual treat for his class at Buckley, the school he was going to, and he no longer goes to Buckley. He uh, he's good. He's going to college now. So I don't know whether Prince will take the reins and will continue those parties as a fundraiser for Heal LA, or or whether they'll continue. I hope they do, um, and I would love to go again. That would be great. Yeah, I mean, the whole time I was there at Havenhurst, I was I was just thinking, man the MJ cast people should be here. You know, Danny Wu was oh. there. Jenny Winings was there. Uh, I was just thinking you should have been there. You really should have been there. It was, uh, it was an incredible, incredible evening. Ah, uh, thank you. One day, one day <laughs> living so far away. It's uh, it, it, it does kind of feel like you're missing out on a lot of these things that kind of happen, especially in America, but Hey, it's all good. Now, Dane Thompson, Friend of the show, Dane Thompson, asks, what has shaped your views on life throughout the years? Good question. Um, I'm surprised people are interested in you and I, Charlie, on that level. But uh, I would say for me, people around me have, in, have inspired me more so than anything else. My parents, definitely, with my work ethic, I guess. Michael Jackson himself uh, and my appreciation of his art has definitely inspired my view on how important it is to stay mentally youthful. I, I don't think I'm that much, you know, different now to what I was as a teenager, to be honest. Maybe my career has progressed and I'm a dad, but uh, I would say that I'm still into the same kind of things in life that I was when I was a kid. And I think it's important to try and always keep that youth and innocence about yourself. I guess, yeah, my wife, definitely, uh, Lee, she inspires me every single day to be a great dad. And also my, my friends around me, like yourself, Charlie, and, and everybody else at the MJ cast and my friends in, in life too, uh, inspire me to dedicate myself to things I love. And, oh, yeah, my students, the kids I work with, definitely inspire me to pass on something to the next generation. So I would say I'm not really inspired, uh, aside from Michael Jackson, you know, people in, you know, celebrities or anything like that, I guess. Yeah. It's the people in my day-to-day -day life around me that, that inspire me. What about you, Charlie? So of course, everybody, everybody's immediate answer would be their family and their friends. And, uh, I think that's a given. I think there's one person in particular who has, um, had an extraordinary impact on shaping my worldview. And it's a guy called Steve Neal. And Steve is, um, an award-winning journalist, multi-award-winning journalist. And uh, he was the first Western journalist ever to be employed by the Xinhua Chinese news agency. He's just, uh, he's had an unbelievable career. He was the first journalist on the scene of the 7-7 bombings in London. Incredibly fortunately, he was my lecturer when I went to university to study journalism. And journalism studies was the practical 
side of of the course, you know, the way you actually went out and started reporting. And he taught me pretty much everything that I know about being a journalist and also about how the world works in real life, you know, because most people go through life not really understanding how corrupt everything is, I think. Or they kind of sort of blithely say, oh, everything's corrupt, all politicians are corrupt, but they don't really understand. No, everything, everything is corrupt. Every institution is corrupt. The police are fundamentally corrupt. The courts are corrupt. Once you get under the surface of what's really going on in the world, everything is corrupt. And, and, uh, and you know, Steve taught me that and he taught me how to find out what was corrupt and that i mean is just completely you know my world view has fundamentally shifted there was the pre-2006 charlie and then it was the post-2006 charlie and my eyes were open to a side of society that just most people never see and he was an incredibly effective teacher and how to root it out. I mean, for example, my my understanding, my understanding of, of what happened in Michael's case, you know, is I I read the trial transcripts in 2005, of course, was of the view that what was happening in court was not matching what was happening if you were to believe what was being reported in the media. In my subsequent investigations, uh, many of which remain unpublished at the moment, the absolute craziness that was going on in those institutions which are supposed to be operating in an unbiased way i never ever would have rooted that stuff out as pre-2006 charlie so you know there's somebody who has fundamentally shaped my worldview as a journalist called steve neal and everything that i am as a journalist is because of him love that answer that is awesome all right (laughs) <laughs> Somebody called Oprah asked if the MJ estate approached you with an olive branch and asked for your help and input, what is the top five list of things that you would like to immediately work on and do? Well, I would recommend to them that they put a strong emphasis on sourcing Michael Jackson video material or music that they don't have in their archives, archiving it properly, remastering it, and then from that, all other good things can come, really. I mean, I, I, I just feel like they haven't really done their groundwork as well as they could have in sourcing material and remastering it. Kind of reminds me when that Vision box set came out and on the front there was a sticker saying all the music videos were, re- were remastered and famously they weren't. And also the VHS Bad concert when we know that the show was shot on film. Um, from different interviews people like colorists have given over the years. So, uh, yeah, that's what I would recommend them to do. Take some care and effort in archiving things because Michael's legacy really as a musician is going to last forever. So it's it's not like they have to have these things ready for tomorrow. Uh, but at some point in the future, it'd be wonderful to see some, you know, high definition remastered videos and concerts and things come out. Charlie, your thoughts? Um, number one would be go into the archive find anything that exists from the history tour and 
incinerate it and <laughs> just to be double sure then just take the ashes and inter them in concrete and throw them off a boat in the middle of the atlantic ocean then number two would be that they need to start work instead of a biopic they need to start work in partnership with a major streaming service on a proper documentary series about the life of michael jackson and that they should in fact team up with taj and uh, produce it properly and set about trying to correct the narrative the third would be to oh sorry this uh, this is the third thing i'm going to say but it should have been number one which is apologize for and rescind the casio tracks oh yes um, of course yeah and then number four would be a hd triumph tour release on blu-ray or something and maybe a brief cinematic release of a properly filmed on celluloid bad tour show very good very good charlie you really understood the assignment with that one i did not mention five things but the five you mentioned i would probably also back for sure very good billy jean asks which mj cast special episode is your favorite and why for both of you uh for me i've probably got two i'll mention the first one is brian loren particularly proud of that episode um <laughs> even though it was one hell of an awkward uh, interview uh, <laughs> to record. But it's uh, for me, that was one where we really accomplished something where we uncovered uh, a lot of information that people hadn't heard before about a pretty mysterious set of recording sessions. And also, I think I really grew as an interviewer during that, that one. That was tough to do in the moment, but I think I did okay. Uh, and I think also what we accomplished with the Leaving Neverland roundtable is um, something I'm very proud of because when you think about what happened with that, we recorded that pretty quickly after the news broke that that documentary was going to be coming out. We, I think it was only a couple of weeks later or even less that we got together and assembled a pretty, pretty good crew of people to talk about it. We had Marcos Cabotta, who was one of the only people around that had actually seen it. He, and, and we did this uh, I can't remember whether it was before Sundance or not. I think it might have been before Sundance, and he'd already seen it at the offices of the film studio he was employed by, and so he was able to talk about it as really somebody who'd, you know, previewed it. Uh, we had Taj there, uh, a Jackson family member. We had yourself, Charlie. You know, probably one of the most well-versed journalists on this topic in the world, if not the most and uh, Samar and we had a really great team of people that broke the the news of what this documentary was really going to be about before it even happened and then combined that with you know recommendations for the fan community on how to sort of approach it uh, when it all happened based on what we had done in the past or had to do in the past with the with the previous allegations so very proud of that episode Q headed it up really well as a host of it. So yeah, they're probably the two episodes I'm most most proud of and uh, my favorites. What about you, Charlie? I'm trying to cast my mind back and remember um, all of the special episodes that you've had because there have been so many and, and I like a lot of them, actually. Um, but I think the one 
that jumps out, and I can't really give you any specific reason as to why, apart from that I just really liked him and thought that he was full of great anecdotal information and he seemed like a very genuine person, was um, Kevin Dorsey. I really enjoyed the Kevin Dorsey episode. Yeah, that was cool. I loved how that one sort of went into this is it territory. But for a brief period of time, he was an employee. He worked on this is it in the very, very early stages. Well, he, he wasn't able to, you know, actually participate in the rehearsals because they turned him away like so many other of um, Michael's immediate previous crew. But that that's one of the only shows we've done where somebody who worked on This Is It in some capacity was, in my opinion, truly honest about it. Yeah, I think that's something that I remember is the story about him showing up one day and being told he wasn't involved anymore. But I think that whole interview, I remember where I was when I listened to it. I remember the train journey I was on and everything. I just, uh, I remember really enjoying that episode. I mean, a lot of the special episodes I've been involved in as an interviewer or as an interviewee. Um, and I've enjoyed those, you know, Judith stands out, Judith Hill, um, mm. Michael Prince. But I think my favorite that I was not involved in has been uh, Kevin Dorsey. Very cool. Thank you. Question from Constantinos. Top five guests that you would love to interview in the in the near future? Well, I've I've listed five. I would love to interview, and some of these, well, one of them actually is in the works. I'm not going to say which one, but uh, I would love to interview Corey Rooney, Teddy Riley, Janet Jackson, Jimmy Jam, and Terry Lewis, counting as one, and Matt Forger. What do you reckon, Charlie? What a question. That's hard to answer off the top of your head. Uh, Susan Yu, Are these, can these be people that we would just grill? Maybe Kenny? Oh, yeah. Um, Kenny Ortega. Maybe, you know, she would never do it, unfortunately, but Karen Faye uh, would be a very interesting person. I think um, at some point, if ever, the many, 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 many appeals and revived lawsuits from the two accusers who don't want any money, Jonathan uh, Steinsapir would be a good person to get on the show extremely knowledgeable about the uh the robson save chuck case in which they don't want any money um <laughs> yeah i think that's off the top of my head yeah maybe oh you know who would be good who was who was a very interesting witness at the ag trial was uh the security guard mike laparuk um he was very very interesting witness at the at the ag trial he would be an interesting person to to get all that stuff factually on the record in a listenable format. Well, it sounds like you're the guy for the job, Charlie. Let's go. I'm ready to record. We have to find him first. I think he's a retired police officer, you know. But yeah, he, I mean, his testimony was not particularly flattering about Michael's world um, during the whole, you know, invincible period. But that's why he's so mm. interesting is that his stories that he told were really candid and, uh, and although they painted a you know a picture of a, a world that was in somewhat disarray, he was um, clearly had great affection for Michael and and was trying to help him make things better. Okay, this is a great question. I love this one from MJJQ. 
Hey, Charles and Jamin, out of each of Michael's full-length solo albums, Off the Wall, Thriller, Bad, Dangerous, History, and Invincible, could you choose one track, which is your personal favorite, which I'm not going to do that because, you know, that's... We've, we've sort of already done that a little bit in the show. But then it says, this is the interesting bit. On the other hand, an unreleased demo or outtake song which could replace your least favorite track on each album with short explanations as to why. Thank you. I hope this isn't too harsh a question. So I'm just going to go with the second part of the question, which I love. I would replace the, these songs in this order. So off the wall, I would replace Girlfriend with Sunset Driver. Thriller, I'd replace The Girl Is Mine with Hot Street, even though The Girl Is Mine did really well on the charts, like probably not a great strategic decision, but I definitely prefer Hot Street to The Girl Is Mine. Bad, Do You Know Where Your Children Are, could have replaced Just Good Friends. Dangerous, Charlie, You're Gonna Kill Me, But Someone Put Your Hand Out could be there instead of Keep the Faith. History, perfect as it is, um, but I, I think I wouldn't replace them, but I'd probably just remove some of the songs from the second half. Uh, Invincible, (laughs) Uh, I would put Escape, We've Had Enough, and She Was Loving Me on the album instead of pretty much anything else on it. Charlie? (laughs) Okay, so Off the Wall, I don't know of any Off the Wall outtake, so I'm just going to leave that. Thriller, I don't like any of the outtake songs that I've ever heard, so I'm going to leave that. Bad, what what were the outtakes from Bad? Oh, you've got... Abortion papers, crack kills. Do you know where your children are? I'm so blue. Do you know where you? Was that not dangerous? No, no, that was uh, that was bad. That goes back as far as bad. Oh, okay, right, yeah. So that could go on instead of about six of the songs on bad. Yeah, just yeah. Oh God, I mean, you could get. I'm definitely. I just can't stop loving you. Get rid of that. Put. Uh, do you know where your children are on? dangerous i agree on someone put your hand out but i would actually remove heal the world and put someone put your hand out in that slot and then release heal the world as the pepsi charity thing history definitely you've got to take off come together i don't know what that was doing on there um in terms of the outtakes the only one that i've heard that sounds like it because i think much too soon is a history outtake but it's really difficult to imagine that actually fitting on the album anywhere i think faces if it had a vocal on it Mm. would have been a really interesting track to include so get rid of come together put that on invincible i mean holy shit you could you could get rid of like almost every song on that album but certainly the lost children should never have been on that album what more can i give should have mm. been on that album but yeah i mean slave to the rhythm is better than anything almost on that album and escape was better than a lot of things on that album so yeah take your pick i love the song escape to me it is just such a natural follow on from the themes both sonically and in terms of the lyrics of what was on history. It, it just feels like the next chapter. I have no idea why Escape was not the opening track for Invincible. It just, yeah, it would have been just a perfect next chapter. Yeah, and certainly a lot better than Unbreakable, which is such a sort of a plodding, oh, just uh, that album. Anyway. Yeah. 
Okay, James Brown asks, does anyone know what happened to the Vogue documentary that had a preview on YouTube and why it was never released? Uh, James is, of course, talking about the Craig Williams Last Photoshoots documentary, which I have actually seen in its entirety. Uh, and it is great. It is absolutely fantastic. It's fun. There's lots of interviews with people around these photo shoots that took place and then lots of footage of Michael, you know, either talking to the camera or or just touring around museums and doing cool, fun stuff. It's really good. I don't know why it never came out. I think he was being sued by the estate for a while. I did used to talk to Craig a bit, and he was always very hopeful that he'd be able to sort something out and that the documentary would come. It's looking less and less hopeful as we go on. This documentary is 100% fully produced and ready to come out. It's edited beautifully. Uh, I have just no idea why it's not out on a TV station somewhere. It's awesome. I want to know how you've seen it and I want you to send it to me. But um, I think, yeah, there was some sort of issue over ownership of the footage whereby the estate was claiming that it owned the footage because Michael had commissioned it. But typically that's not how copyright works. You know, working in the media, certainly in the UK, a photographer retains the ownership of their image even if they're commissioned, unless they sign it away. I think that essentially what happened was a billion-dollar estate took on a filmmaker who was not a billionaire, and even though the estate did not really have much of a basis in law for blocking that documentary, they took advantage of their bottomless resources and just uh, put him in a position where it was almost, you know, he couldn't. He couldn't afford to fight them, I th- was my understanding of what happened. I don't know why they did that, because it didn't seem like there was going to be anything particularly negative in the documentary. It didn't sound particularly interesting either, to be honest. Just a bunch of footage of Michael getting his photo taken. I mean, you know, I don't know what, I don't know what irked them so much about that. I'd love to see it. James Brown also asks, how do you feel about supposed friends of Michael Jackson, such as Quincy Jones, some of the Ross family, uh, etc., still openly supporting Oprah? Or do you think Oprah is just so big that it's career suicide to come out against her? I would say absolutely the latter. She is huge. She has struck a major deal with Apple TV, uh, a huge partnership. She is a very influential figure even today. Just look at her interview with Harry and Meghan. Uh, she is influential and, and if, yeah, basically if you come up against Oprah, then, uh, you come out looking like the bad guy, I think in a lot of cases. So, uh, I, I, I think it's all just to do with influence and people wanting to align themselves with her. I think also you have to remember that not everybody views the whole world through a prism of Michael Jackson and, uh, not everybody follows everything that happens with Michael Jackson. I mean, many fans know more about Michael Jackson than his own brothers and sisters or kids because they don't study Michael Jackson in the in the depth that fans do. You know, to him, to them, he's just their brother. He's just their dad or whatever. So, or he's just their friend who they don't spend all day reading about on the internet and they don't see every newspaper article that comes out and every TV show and whatever. So, you know, I think a lot of the time fans are assuming a specialist knowledge that the objects of their ire don't necessarily possess, you know, is Diana Ross even aware 
of you know there being an issue as regards Oprah and Michael Jackson. Who knows? She you know maybe she just doesn't watch a lot of TV. Who you know? It's the the idea that Diana Ross needs to know the intricacies of everybody in the media that's crossed Michael Jackson and should be living her whole life in accordance with not uh, having anything to do with anyone that's perceived as having slighted him is is somewhat of a big ask, really. Uh, you know, she has her own life to live and we don't know what she does and doesn't know about any situation and what is or is not informing those decisions. Great answer. Love it. Kieran Kibble asks, Hi, Jamin and Charles. What are your top three MJ short films and why? Thanks for all your work you do in supporting Michael's legacy. I can answer this one really quickly. I love Thriller for The Ground It Broke. I love Smooth Criminal for the visual masterpiece that it is. And my third favorite Michael Jackson short film, in fact, this is my favorite of his short films, is Stranger in Moscow. I think it's an underrated, timeless piece of art that represents Michael as the creative genius in film that he became in the history era. I am going to go with Thriller and Smooth Criminal also. Thriller because of its enormous cultural significance. Smooth Criminal because it's less culturally significant, but it's better. And um, Earth Song because it's extraordinarily powerful. I was talking earlier about how I've never got goosebumps listening to Earth Song, which is true. Listening to Keep the Faith gives me goosebumps. Listening to Earth Song doesn't, but the video does. The uh, is so powerful, is so unbelievable. And there, if you go on YouTube, actually, there are quite a few reaction videos of people watching the video of, of Earth Song, and it's incredible how moved a lot of people are when they see it for the first time. I just stumbled across those probably a year ago or something. There might be more of them now, but yeah, they're worth watching. Ben asks, what motivates you both to still remain active in the MJ fan community all these years later? I don't think that I am active in the fan community, by which I mean that I don't belong to any Michael Jackson fan sites or message boards I mean, the extent of my involvement is that I sometimes appear on the MJ cast. You know, I'm on Twitter and I sometimes will address Michael on Twitter, the cases and stuff, but Twitter is not the Michael Jackson fan community. Twitter is just Twitter and uh, it's just a massive global publishing network. So I don't actually consider myself to be active within the fan community. No, I think you are. Let me ask you two questions. Are you a Michael Jackson fan? Yeah, I would say so, yeah. Do you talk to Michael Jackson fans online or in real life? Yeah. Then you're active in the fan Yeah, but you, could, but you could say that about, you know, my nan. <laughs> well, like yeah, I would. sister, you know, I mean, so, but they're not active in the community, you know. But what I mean is I don't, I don't attend fan events. I don't oh, yeah, neither do belong I. to any fan forums. So my sole interaction with the quote-unquote community would be speaking via your podcast or speaking on Twitter. So that's what I mean. I, I'm not I'm not a part of the fan world in in the whole you know fan gatherings sense. Well, I I I will speak for our listenership, and I think you will have just broken many people's hearts by saying you're not in the fan community. I think many people think you are in the fan community, and 
deeply value you as a member of the of the community so <laughs> okay what m- motivates me to still remain active aside from my deep and ongoing appreciation for michael's art is the friendships i've built with other fans uh the deep friendships many many of of my friends like you charlie and damien and elise and q and so many people i've known for like you know well over a decade now and uh, are very important parts of my lives so that automatically i am connected in with the fan community because i've got so many deep friendships with people in it but also um i guess apart from our mandate at the mj cast to capture the stories of people who knew and worked with michael and provide commentary on him it, i i recently since leaving neverland have there's a new reason why I really like to still be involved in the community and to do the MJ cast within the community. And I think it's to kind of try or attempt to raise the profile of what it means to be a Michael Jackson fan. I think a lot of Michael Jackson fans or the community in general sometimes get to bad rap because so many members of it act so crazy. And so, uh, you know, they kind of worship Michael in this ridiculous way. Whereas I think if there's fans in the community that are approaching him sensibly and having really educated civil discussion critique about his life, I think we have a chance to raise what it means to be a Michael Jackson fan in the public eye. You know, somebody who says, oh, I'm a Beatles fan uh, for right or wrong often, you know, gets viewed as, you know, somebody, or no, that's a bad example. Let's choose like a jazz artist, like Miles Davis. If you go out and say, I'm a Miles Davis fan, automatically people are going to think of you like, oh, cool. You you know, you're pretty cultured. You know your stuff. You know, I want, I want it to be like that. If you go out and say, Hey, I'm a Michael Jackson fan. And unfortunately it's not like that anymore because of a lot of reasons, but it should be. And that's why I want to be in the Michael Jackson fan community and publicly. So to try and help raise that a bit, but anyway. I think that your answer was was very good, and in fact, it's not been cool to say you're a Michael fan since probably 1993. Mm. I too have a number of friends who are, you know, lifelong, very very close and and great friends who I've met through Michael Jackson connections, including you. But yeah, the it's almost hard to say what the community is anymore i mean you know years ago you there was a flood of message boards and stuff i suppose today it would be more like facebook groups or something but i certainly don't belong to any of them there is hard to say what is the community and how do you access the community i think a huge part of it is probably the mj cast actually yeah. something that brings fans together but there it doesn't exist in the way that it once did for any artist, really. It's all kind of been replaced by Twitter and Facebook. I mean, you know, Greg Spinks is running a, a forum now. I forget what that's called, but... Um, behind the Mask. Behind the Mask, yes. But I'm not on it. I'm not part of it. And I don't know how many people are participating or anything. I, I don't know what kind of a demand there is now for those kind of gathering places dorsa asks if you had to choose one documentary or book where it would capture the whole essence of michael jackson which one would it be well that's a very difficult question it has to be randy tarabarelli's book for me 
that is the definitive book um, to date. And he's a he's such a controversial figure in the community. I would love to interview him one day, actually, because he you're right. He has written the most comprehensive biography, yet he has such a poor reputation with everyday Michael Jackson fans. It's so undeserved. I just don't get, I just don't understand. I mean, he even got abused at the trial. They used to scream tabloid Arelli at him on his way in and out of the courtroom. It was like, are you even watching his coverage? Because his coverage was so fair and so good compared to so many people that were covering that case. I just don't get the fans' hatred of him, but it seems to stem from the fact that there are some stories in his books that they don't like. But, you know, just because you don't like it doesn't mean that it's not true. You can't just demand that anything you don't like be censored. Michael's story is a very difficult and complex one, and Michael was a very damaged and complex person, and anybody would be that had lived the life that he lived. And everybody has faults and everybody has bad days and it's ridiculous to demand that michael emerges from every portrayal as an almost like superhuman angelic hero figure you know i I remember seeing fans years ago ranting and raving that he had written in his book that michael had sworn about something how dare he michael would never swear michael would (laughs) never swear it's like oh get a grip you know what i mean so for me, it's got to be Tarabrelli. Uh, and and uh, I have many hours of interviews with Randy, about seven hours or something. And they're so interesting. And maybe one day, if he gives me permission, I'll just give them to you. I think the audio quality might be might pop your head, Jamin. But, <laughs> you know, I would I, I would prefer if i was going to do something with randy to just publish those tapes rather than try to recapture them with better audio because you're never going to get the same they're just so good yeah maybe one day they'll be made public yeah if you uh want to get permission from him maybe we could release them as a multi-part thing i'm sure the interview would be fairly similar to what we've done in the past with you asking questions and him answering so we could just sort of top and tail it and put it out yeah, so the interviews were done for a specific purpose, and once that purpose has been fulfilled, maybe I'll try and see if I can get permission to just put out the whole tapes. Susie asks, if you had a time machine and could take two trips to the past, one to any MJ performance and one to any moment in Michael's life where you could use your time to speak with him personally and maybe warn him for certain things, which moments in time would you choose? I'll go first performance that I would go back to and watch would probably be the bad tour show in my home city of Brisbane that um, Darren Hayes was also at as a young kid watching. Um, From all accounts, that was just a phenomenal show. It was an indoor arena, which would have had incredible sound quality. Apparently, the energy was just absolutely amazing in the crowd. The only downside is, famously, that's the show that Wade Robson was on stage with MJ for at the end, but it was also the show that had Stevie Wonder on stage. So yeah, I would totally be at that bad show in Brisbane in my home city in 1987. Uh, In terms of going back and warning Michael of something or finding him at a certain point in time, I probably would go back to, hmm, I think the time that it would have been most opportune to get to him to warn him of something would have been in 2009. Like, cause the thing is you could go back to one before the trial or something, but 
would that really have changed his behavior long term? Would he have stopped putting himself at risk with kids? Maybe not. I think probably the easiest way to have warned him would have been, well, I mean, there were lots of fans that were trying to do this, so it's easier said than done, but to just get to him at some point just before the trial and say, hey, look, this is not going to end well, <laughs> Murray. But <laughs> who knows if that would have changed anything. Charlie? My answers are identical. The first thing that popped into my head when you asked the question was Brisbane um, because there's some incredible footage of a uh, lovely one from Brisbane which is just, I mean, I've never seen Michael on better form than he is in that clip. And of course, I've uh, heard Darren's experiences and the fact that it was indoor, because those outdoor gigs, the sound is just crap. I'm sorry, it just is. It's rubbish. And I, I hate whenever an artist I like is playing an outdoor gig, it just sinks my heart because you want to go, but you just go, oh, for fuck's sake. So, I mean, like Stevie Wonder, I've seen him several times and the two times I've seen it been in Hyde Park is almost wasn't worth going just complete waste of time and yeah I think you're right about 2009 I mean for me it's 2009 or it's the day that Joe asks him to join the band one of those two hmm. interesting answer well it's the only way you could have stopped Michael was fucked up right you know there's no two ways about it there, there's no you know I mean, his childhood experience was extremely traumatic and damaging, and that is manifested in so many ways in his adult life, from his the difficulty that he has forming relationships to his pathological suspicion of adults to what he does to his appearance to the need to constantly uh, defy everybody defy convention every time somebody tells him something's not a good idea he wants to do it twice as much and you know his whole life every everything that happened in michael's adult life that was wrong and bad you can trace back to that childhood so um even if you removed all of the added stress and pressure of the career you would still be left with joe beating the shit out of him but I do think if you genuinely cared for Michael Jackson and you genuinely wanted to protect him from the many negative things that would happen throughout his life, then the only real moment to intervene would be the day that they ask him to join the band and just tell him, don't do it, don't do it. Debbie T asks, how do you as hosts of the MJ cast who have interviewed several members of the Jackson family feel about reports coming from the bodyguards, Randall Sullivan and others that Michael's family were a bunch of grifters during his life and after his death? I think it's a really good question. And to that, I would say that Michael's family isn't just one entity and shouldn't be treated like, you know, all thinking the same way on a certain topic. It's made up of a range of individuals all of whom have separate motives and behaviors. And like any big family, there's going to be some people in that family that do things to their siblings and kids at some point that aren't nice. I've said things to my siblings that aren't nice and they've said things to me that aren't nice, but you come together and you forgive each other like a family and move on. So are there family members in the Jackson family that have taken advantage of Michael or treated him badly or whatever or been grifters maybe sure but hey that's a family they're a big family does that detract from their legacy no 
Does that detract from the impact that they had on the world? No, I don't think so. They're just a family and should be treated like that. What do you think, Charlie? I think grifters is a very strong word. I think that there's something, particularly when you're talking about the bodyguards, there's something that you have to keep in mind, which is that Michael was an addict and he did not want his family gaining access to him because they were constantly trying to stage interventions. Again, something that came out after he died. It was rumored while he was alive, but it was something that really came out and was borne out by the testimony in in subsequent cases, posthumous cases. So it suited him to tell the bodyguards, don't let my family in because they'll just want money. Don't want my family in. Don't let my family in because they'll just want something from me. But was that really why he didn't want them to let the family in? Or was it because... He knew that every time the family got in, they were trying to stage an intervention. So that's classic addict behavior is trying to keep out anybody who is is trying to help you. Now, the other thing that is important to note were a few things. Firstly, amongst the paperwork found in Michael's room when he died was a note he had written that... uh, was instructing it was it was reminding him to instruct his team that he wanted the keys to all of his properties given to Taj he wanted all of his lockups all of his storage facilities all of his houses he wanted everything turned over to Taj and he wanted Taj to be in charge of everything so you know that's certainly evidence that he did not view his whole family as a bunch of grifters there's witness testimony from numerous people that when things started going wrong during this is it when he felt the schedule was was overwhelming him and so on the first thing he started doing was asking for his dad and that um you know when he walked off the stage one day he said something like people wouldn't be treating me like this if joseph was here something something like that so again in times of crisis who did he turn to it was his family that he turned to and it was his family that were there who were the only people pretty much that stood by him in 2005 it was his family and look at this is it Uh, not this is it look at leaving neverland michael jacks the only the only relatives that earn anything from the michael jackson estate are his mother and his three children and yet his brothers were all over the tv defending him you know they're not doing that for money so I think it's a lot more complicated, that, and I think the media has long had a narrative which is in part racially motivated, which I've spoken about on the show before. I think I think there is a racially motivated uh, narrative to portray all of his relatives as as uh, greedy thieves, jackals, animals, uncaring, incapable of basic human emotion. They can't possibly just love their brother. There has to be some ulterior motive. I think I think that's been built into the Jackson family narrative by the media for, for many decades now. Yeah, yeah, I'd agree. And I, I would also point to um, a speech Michael gave that you heard live uh, at the World Music Awards in 2006 um, when he was receiving his, I think it was called a Diamond Award or something. He specifically thanked his mother and father, and I think he said all of his brothers and sisters as well. Um, So even in his last few years, he obviously cared about his family very much enough to thank all of them 
on stage when he received one of the most significant awards of his life. I never heard that speech when I was there because the roar of the crowd was so unbelievably deafening that I could not hear a single word of his entire acceptance speech. Nothing. <laughs> well, go, go and watch it. I never found out what he said until they broadcasted it afterwards. It was pandemonium in there. Yeah. Okay, only three questions to go. Mira Kontar asks, what are the best arguments to make when discussing Michael's status as the greatest entertainer? I see weak arguments, like he makes people faint or that he can just stand there and entertain us, which doesn't hold when discussing skill set. I have my own answer, but I'd like to hear yours. Well, first of all, I think we should establish, Charlie, do you believe that Michael Jackson was the greatest entertainer that's ever lived or not? Entertainer is an interesting word, and I, I don't know what the answer to that is. Do I think he was the greatest live musician of all time? No. I definitely think that was Prince. I think uh, Entertainer. No, I don't think he was. I just don't. You know, I think that Michael possessed many skill sets and that there probably is nobody else that has possessed all of those skill sets at the same time in the way that Michael has in terms of being an amazing songwriter and composer, being an amazing vocalist, being probably one of the greatest dancers that the world has ever seen, being a visionary who can create these huge spectacles. But I think that although he possessed all of those talents, and there was a very brief period where he was in full command of all those talents and using them to the best that they could be at the same time, that window was very, very brief. And it was like a flash, you know, it was like a magnesium f flash, and then it was gone again. And by dangerous, you know, you're sort of building up to the bad tour and then you get the bad tour and then it's a decline. So it's, it's a very brief moment. Whereas if you take Prince, for example, did he have Michael's dance ability? No. Did he have Michael's vocal ability? No, he was, an he was a great dancer and he was a great vocalist. Did he have Michael's ability in either of those fields? No, he didn't. But what he did know was how to pace a show. So Michael has this amazing vocal ability, but then he dances himself into such a breathless mess that when he comes to sing a live song, he keeps missing bits of it. He, he's not hitting the notes the way that he should be, you know? So, so I, just, I just think the Prince overall was the more polished, the more accomplished, and had way, way, way more long, longevity than uh, the Michael did. Yeah, I think that's a really good way to put it. That's really good. I think if you're judging the artist on their absolute peak, if if your criteria is who peaked more strongly, I think you'd say Michael Jackson on the basis of the bad tour. But I don't think that's how an artist should be judged. There's so much more to it than that. And like I said earlier in the show, as huge a Michael Jackson fan as, as I am, you know, 10, 20 years out, you kind of get tired of watching Michael Jackson shows all the time because once you've seen a few of them, you've seen all of them. Whereas with Prince, every show is different. You've got a lifetime of musicality to explore. So, um, yeah, interesting. It's a topic we'll explore further on our, our next uh, episode, I think. Dexter Williams says, between watching snippets 
of the Chauvin trial on television and seeing discourse and comments about it on social media, I've wondered what effect having filmed MJ's 2005 trial would have had. Do you think in hindsight that filming and broadcasting the 2005 trial on television would have hurt or harmed Michael's reputation as far as the general public is is concerned? It would have harmed Michael because um, it would have enabled witnesses to view all of the witnesses' testimony which preceded theirs, which would have enabled them to script and uh, script their answers, to rehearse their answers and make sure that they all corroborated one another. For example, the Arvizos were all caught contradicting one another on key parts of their story. Had they all been sat at home watching each other's testimony and uh, remembering what each other had said so that they could corroborate one another, then that would have massively harmed Michael's defense case. So I think it was absolutely the right decision not to allow cameras in. Sean Clarence asks two questions. Well, actually quite a few more than two, but we'll only include two just to wrap the show up here. We're getting to the end. Um, He asks, if you had access to Michael's vault and could release one definitive project, what part or parts of Michael would you showcase and why? For me, I think there's an argument to be made for a career encompassing mini series, of course, a documentary mini series. But if I could only do one thing ever, it would be a high definition remastered version of an indoor bad tour show. And the reason I say that is because when all is said and done, what speaks more than anything else is Michael's artistry. That's what stops people and makes them watch. I remember during the height of the allegations in the mid-2000s, I worked at a video store, uh, Blockbuster Video, and I would put on Michael concerts on the TVs. And, you know, this was at a time when people were talking about Michael being potentially a pedophile, et cetera. Didn't matter who that person was walking throughout the store, they would stop and they would watch when Michael was performing Billie Jean and they'd stay and watch the whole thing. <laughs> and I think, I think that's ultimately what Michael will be first and foremost remembered for, hopefully, is his artistry and performance. And that's what I would release as a project if I could only do one. Charlie? Yeah, I agree with you pretty much. I mean, the only, the only thing else which might tempt me would be the Triumph Tour, uh, if we could get it, because it's the only tour where Michael had a proper big band with horns, it's a tour where Michael looks fantastic before he started doing a lot of stuff to his appearance. I mean, of course, he's not as polished as he is on the bad tour, but I think it would be great to actually have something out from that era, whereas we do have, albeit imperfect, uh, bad tour material that's already out there. Final question. We've had nearly 100 questions submitted, but we've had to cut them down quite significantly, and this is the one we're including as last. Uh, it's addressed directly to me, but I'll, I'll let's both answer it, Charlie. Sean Clarence also asks, if you could sit in the studio and watch Michael record one song, what would it be? What, what would be that song for you, Charlie? Well, it has to be the Keep the Faith or Earth song, I think, for me, just because the, the vocals are so unbelievably incredible. I think that would have been staggering to, and because he never actually performed a song of that nature live, really. I mean, you got the bad tour performances of Man in the Mirror where the second half was live and whatever, but I think that would have been a 
a spine tingling experience. Yeah, I'm going to go with Earth Song or They Don't Care About Us. The reason being, well, Earth Song for its vocal, uh, incredible vocals, but there's a lot of stories about the They Don't Care About Us recording around Michael, you know, tinkering with percussive elements and, you know, going back and forth over the technicality of the song. And I think there's a great, I really want to interview this guy, but I can't remember his name, but there was an engineer that was working on the song who gave a great story once, very comedic in his telling of it, where Michael was giving him really, really abstract instructions. Like I want, uh, he was saying something like, I want more sticks in the song. There's not enough sticks. And then this guy had to go out and try and figure out what sticks meant. And he (laughs) used all these different sounds to create what, you know, Michael would have liked. I think, anything from the history era, but especially they don't, they don't care about us would have been an incredible experience to watch Michael craft that with his team in the studio. But I think I'd probably have to settle on earth song just based on that amazing call and response at the end. I think the, I think there's the potential for it to be underwhelming. You know, there was a lot of hype a few years ago when Brad Sundberg was playing some video footage of very, very rare for Michael to allow video to be shot while he was recording vocals. But there was video footage of Michael recording childhood. And it was so underwhelming when he played it because Michael was coughing all the way through every single line that he sang, he coughed at the end of it. And um, of course, when the song is released, they just chop all the coughing out. But it sort of destroyed the magic of the song because now whenever you listen to childhood, you're going, well, yeah, this sounds amazing, but I know he was coughing all the way through it until they edited it out. So in a way, I think some of this stuff is best left to the imagination. Yeah. I think that's a, I think that's a reasonable way to look at it. And this goes back to that argument where you're really comparing Michael Jackson against other artists like Prince. Michael had chops. He was amazing. No doubt. But he also was very strategic in how he pieced together things, whether it was music or or videos or even performances. You know, he was very, very strategic. And I think um, there's been people on the show before describe him as a almost more like a magician, (laughs) as an entertainer. He liked to put on the spectacle, whereas Prince was just raw all the way through 100% natural. Well, I remember being at Brad's Cologne event where it was three days of brad with brad boxer and michael prince they were describing i think brad boxer was describing how they had made the song jam and when you listen to the vocal on jam that is pieced together syllable by syllable from loads and loads and loads dozens of different takes so they were literally listening to michael singing the vocal, the verses to jam. And then when, so in a line like nation to nation, or the world must come together. When you're listening to nation, that word may be cobbled together from three different takes. They said they were literally going through and what, what was the best shun? What was the best gather? You know, so they, they took all of these vocal performances and spliced them together to make a vocal performance. So, You're right. When you listen to a Michael song, you're listening to something which has been constructed meticulously. 
that's why I think the experience of watching it being made could, in a way, is like you say, it's like uh, it's like ruining the illusion, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, I remember being quite shocked when they told that story, and they even had all of the uh, the original notations that they'd taken in the studio. So, like, nay is from take two, and then shun is from take seventeen, and they, you know, they had the whole <laughs> the whole like uh, the whole document that they'd created showing the the origin of of each syllable it was quite remarkable yeah i think that just really speaks to michael's philosophy as an artist though i I really do after all these people we've spoken to i really do think that michael viewed art in a very aristotelian kind of way where it's like there's a perfect version of this song that exists somewhere in the ether and his job was to try and get as close to that perfect version sonically as possible at any cost. And even with his live performances, you know, maybe, maybe he just got lazier over time, who knows? Or maybe he just truly believed that he wanted through thick or thin, through whatever trick necessary to achieve visually and sonically that perfect version of that song. (laughs) Who knows? But that seems to be how he operated. Yeah, I guess we'll never know. It's kind of when you when you lift the curtain, it just kind of forever changes the way that you listen to the song. I kind of wish I didn't know that now. The same as childhood, I wish I'd never seen that bit of video. So you're you're telling our audience to not go to Brad Sundberg shows. <laughs> His things are very very informative, and I've always enjoyed them, but just there's certain information that uh you just can't listen to the song in the same way again the way you make me feel was ruined by those seminars because he played us the way you make me feel the way it was originally recorded which was quite a bit slower um and then they actually sped it up for no reason other than that they were trying to fit the album onto the vinyl or something (laughs) or they were trying to fit it onto the disc and they had to make some of the songs shorter so the way you make me feel and smooth criminal ended up being sped up and after he played them to us in original tempo and then played us the originals immediately afterwards, they, the, the, you know, the, when I say the originals, I mean the, the versions that were uh, released, they sounded ridiculous by comparison. It was like listening to Alvin and the Chipmunks compared to the, the version that was actually recorded. Oh, I need to hear that. <laughs> yeah, that sort of ruined those songs as well. There's uh, quite a few songs that have been ruined by Brad Sundberg, but not. You know, just just through him telling the truth, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, well, listen, Charlie, it's been really great. Uh, a, a much longer recording than I thought it would be, as always. Yeah. But it's it's been absolutely wonderful talking with you. Um, just as we wrap up, if uh, our listeners want to connect with you um, on Twitter, where, where can they find you? I'm on Twitter at, at C.E. Thompson, T-H-O-M-S-O-N. They may find when they come to follow me, if if it's on a bad day, that my uh, Twitter is locked. And that's because there are a number of fans who are, for some reason, intent on dragging me into arguments with people about leaving Neverland. And sometimes I do just despair so much of these fans' constant troublemaking and decisions to keep tagging me into arguments and rows that I have no interest in, that I just lock my account. I'm having to do it more and more 
because I, I just don't understand what the point of, of doing it is. So, you know, please stop doing that if you're listening to this show, because I just don't understand what you're trying to achieve. And every time you do it, I lock my account <laughs> and yet the message is not getting through. But please stop doing that because <laughs> it's so unbelievably draining and annoying. You had it straight from Charlie, folks. Stop pissing him off. Listeners, if you want to connect with the MJ Cast, you can find us on social media at the MJ Cast on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram, and you can also subscribe to our show as well uh, on podcast platforms. There's lots of different ones, of course. There's Apple Podcasts, there's Google Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, lots of different kinds. We're on YouTube as well. Um, you can get the shows a little later on there, about a week later than we put them out on podcast apps, but we're there as well. Uh, we'd love for you to connect with us as much as possible. Uh, Charlie, thank you so much again. I don't know what number episode this is for you, but it's been a lot and uh, I've loved every one of them. But this has been so much fun and uh, thank you very much. Oh, no problem. Thanks for having me as always. Mm-hmm.